Okay, let's do this. So you, you knew it was coming, the animal episode. Uh, I talked about it last week, uh, how I've been preoccupied with uh, the morality or lack thereof of eating meat, uh, concerns about animal welfare, etc. And um, I probably should have scripted this, but I've been wanting to do this for a couple of weeks now, and I figured, let's just do it, you know? So it's just me and my iPad full of notes here, and... Uh, I'm just looking at my notes, just little, little thoughts that I trapped down on, I almost said on paper, but on my iPad screen here. We are monsters, baboon head torture, Hieronymus Bosch nightmare, skinned alive, eyes blinking. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just thinking about if someone stumbled upon my notes. And don't worry, I haven't lost what's left of my mind. Uh, I'll, I'll explain these notes in a bit. And before I go any further, let me briefly stop to talk about drugs for a minute. So I noticed something kind of interesting. So I mentioned how I've been on amitriptyline for uh, my migraines, still on fluoxetine too. So wow, man, I am all loaded up in the uh, antidepressant uh, category there. Got my tricyclic antidepressant, my SSRI. Um, and I'd be lying to say if it was just for headaches. There's some uh, history of depression there too. Let's not, uh, let's not kid around. <laughs> and intellectual honesty, always important on this show. And uh, I noticed uh, the only real side of, negative side effects I've noticed with amitriptyline are a little drowsiness and some kind of bad dry mouth. And I thought about my old friend Yohimbine, <laughs> the derivative of Yohimbi, uh, that uh, kind of like a natural plant supplement that uh, people take that helps a lot of, you know, people who work out a lot take it. Supposedly, it's kind of a stimulant, a fat burner, uh, also helps in the boner department. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I also noticed that it used to cause a lot of like salvation. I'm like, am I, am I crazy or is it really doing this? And I looked it up and yeah, it's a well-known side effect of Yohimbi, and I think it can be like a positive side effect, is that it increases your um, the amount of saliva you produce. And a second ago, did it sound like I said salvation? I meant salivation. Maybe it was a Freudian slip. Um, is Yohimbi my salvation? Maybe, you know, if, if you're looking for help with a firmer erection or a wetter mouth, uh, this show's already <laughs> spiraling downward and uh, not even three minutes yet. But anyway, being the mad amateur chemist I am, uh, always using my body as my own testing ground, <laughs> I decided to try taking five milligrams of Yohimbine while taking amitriptyline, and it actually does provide a lot of relief for the uh, dry mouth. But uh, Yohimbine can also, you know, make you feel hot and cold at the same time, give you these weird shivers, so <laughs> probably not for everyone. So anyway, as I was discussing in the last episode, I think I almost said, as I was disgusting, where are all these weird Freudian slips coming from? Anyway, as I was discussing in the last episode, um, animal welfare is something I've been concerned with for a long time, and I've been kind of, you know, a meat eater with a guilty conscience for a long time. And I did that episode... Uh, way back, you know, early on into the podcast, 
called God Bless the Animals. Once again, no, wasn't a believer then, was still an agnostic atheist or whatever. Uh, it was probably meant to be something of an ironic title. And I also, in that episode, I did actually point out some of the good places in the Bible where I think it actually promotes respect and care for other uh, life forms or animals. And uh, actually, one of my favorite biblical, as, as critical as I am of religion, as, you know, kind of brutally critical as I can sometimes be of Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, there are things I like about the Bible. There are some stories I find inspirational. One of my favorite biblical stories is the story of Balaam and the donkey. I think it's Balaam, isn't it? There's this story about this guy who's just, uh, this is going to, no, this isn't a euphemism. This is going to sound dirty. I was going to say a guy who was beating his donkey, got caught beating his donkey, uh, who hasn't. But anyway, so this guy, um, Balaam, he's, once again, not a euphemism. He's literally beating his, uh, his donkey, his beast of burden, this pack animal uh, with a rod or a stick or something. And unbeknownst to him, there's an angel of the Lord kind of off to the side who's at, at the moment is invisible. And uh, so the angel sees all this going down and the donkey is imbued with the power of speech. And I actually slid in a, a little without explanation, a little image of this in uh, the last episode uh, of the, the donkey kind of looking up at turning backward and looking up at, Bal at Balaam, who's on the donkey's back, you know, striking him. And the donkey says, you know, I've been, you know, a loyal animal, uh, a loyal donkey, I guess. You know, I've been loyal and all this. Why do you beat me? You know, I don't deserve this. And Balaam continues to, to strike the poor animal. And the angel of the Lord makes himself visible and appears to Balaam and basically dresses him down for, you know, striking this poor animal who didn't deserve to be beaten or whatever, you know. And that's actually one of my favorite biblical stories. And then also, um, I can't remember if this is in the canonical Bible or if it's a kind of apocryphal or outside text, um, but there's a version of the flood story where eating meat is considered a kind of compromise or concession, but, you know, after the flood, but it, it's made clear that this isn't the ideal thing. This is, eating meat is inherently kind of bad, you know, and this is just, uh, God is offering this kind of compromise or concession, but it, it's almost like the Bible is noting that eating meat is, yeah, it, it's, it, it's not ideal. You know, I mean, and I, I actually said that I thought you could read into the flood narrative also that there's a kind of value placed on all animals because it's not just animals that are, uh, I was almost going to say edible. You know, it's not just animals that are used for meat or, you know, animal husbandry or pack animals. All animals, even the creeping things, are saved or brought aboard the ark, right? So it almost seems like there's a kind of... And obviously, non-believer here, I don't take the uh, the flood narrative literally, but just reading into the story, it's like there is some kind of reverence for life placed there in the sense that 
all you know all members of every species it seems are preserved not just the ones that are useful to man uh but then also the flip side of the coin god basically does commit genocide <laughs> nearly wipes out the entire human species and every other you know and uh most of the members of every other species via global flood you know what i mean you know what i mean so there is that there is that. It, the, the, it is a kind of morally questionable story in all, in, in, that, uh, <laughs> in that regard. And I said global flood, but that's probably kind of incorrect because the people who wrote or created the story probably didn't embrace a globe earth model. Um, well, we all know the, the flood uh, narrative in the Bible is supposedly inspired by older Mesopotamian traditions, like the flood narrative we find in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, the Atrahasis, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think the ancient Jews, didn't they have a model or concept of Earth being kind of, you know, relatively flat with a domed firmament? Uh, and, and that kind of, <laughs> and so I think there are some religious flat earthers that, you know, part of the reason they probably embrace the idea of a flat Earth is because it's in keeping with this old anachronistic uh, model, this religious model of the earth. So anyway, that old episode, God Bless the Animals, I think that was partially a response to a couple of things I had seen. Around that time, I had seen uh, undercover footage from a slaughterhouse of workers really, you know, mistreating pigs. And that kind of made me rethink, you know, my, my dietary choices. And uh, also around that time, I think I had stumbled upon a PETA documentary on HBO. And I saw something in that documentary that still haunts me. And uh, wow. And I, I had seen something similar recently in a couple of documentaries I watched. And so we're about 10 minutes in now, and I probably should have given this warning at the, you know, the very beginning of the episode, but I'm going to get really graphic. I'm going to talk about some disturbing stuff here, and I haven't decided if I'm going to show any graphic imagery in the YouTube version of this, I don't know. So if you're someone who gets kind of queasy easily or someone who's easily disturbed by stories of animal abuse, you may want to bail out now, just letting you know. But anyway, what I saw specifically in that old PETA documentary that really bothered me was graphic footage from a fur farm. And I forget what exact kind of, uh, kind of animal it was. I don't know if it was a mink or a fox, but they basically, this, I told you, man, bail if you're easily, you know, bothered uh, by, you know, graphic stories of animal abuse, they showed this animal essentially being skinned alive. They showed, you know, a person pulling uh, the fur with the skin attached to it off of this live kind of wriggling animal. And then they showed a close-up of the thing's face. Basically, you know, no skin, no fur, just this nightmare face of, you know, red-pink muscle or whatever, and you could see the breath coming out of the animal's mouth. It's gasping. It's still alive. And they basically chuck its corpse onto a pile, or not, I shouldn't say corpse because it's not dead yet. They chuck its body onto a, a pile of other, you know, corpse, skinned corpses or whatever. 
And that, as you can understand, you know, that really got to me and stayed with me. And I recently watched two other documentaries recently that had similar footage in it. And so, what a dark thing to uh, research, whatever. But I looked up online, you know, the the subject uh, of animals being skinned alive. And there was actually uh, people trying to say that, um, no, animals are never skinned alive. Uh, And some people tried to, you know, suggest that it it must be fake or something. And other people, I think spokespeople for the fur industry were trying to say, the footage was real because you can look at it and say, I mean, that ain't fake, man. You can tell it's real. And um, they were trying to suggest that PETA probably paid someone to uh, to film an animal being skinned alive and blame it on the fur trade. You know what I mean? And I should stop to say that I have my own issues with PETA. Uh, I agree with their core kind of mission statement or goal of trying to protect animals and trying to prevent or end animal cruelty, you know? But it seems to me that sometimes they can be a little too gung-ho or overzealous when it comes to euthanizing animals. And uh, I think that's not just coming from, you know, right-wing detractors of theirs, you know, some kind of negative spin or whatever. I think I've also seen stories critical of PETA coming from the left. I think it was a story I saw on the Huffington Post maybe only about a year ago or so, that really bothered me because I have a pet chihuahua. And uh, there was this story about one of their volunteers or workers or whatever going out to like this poor community. I think it was a trailer park where there were like a poor, there was a poor immigrant family, um, pr- probably Hispanic or something like that. And they had a pet chihuahua. And this woman, this young woman working for PETA, supposedly befriended the family, played with the dog, all this, you know, she had visited them a couple of times and got to earn their trust. And one day when the family was out and the chihuahua was hanging out on the front porch or something like that, um, she came, got the dog and brought it to one of PETA's euthanasia sites or whatever and, and put the dog down. And I guess this isn't an isolated case. You know, if you go online and research PETA and euthanasia, you can find uh, lots of disturbing stories about animals unnecessarily being put down. And I understand that part of the problem is that there's so many unwanted animals in the world, uh, so many strays, etc., and there's not enough room for all of them in shelters that, you know, people will use that to try to justify putting animals down, these animals where there's no place to house them or whatever. But obviously, this wasn't a stray. This was someone's pet. And actually, let me uh, Google something. And this is actually, this is interesting. Uh, One of the top results was from Snopes. Is PETA stealing and killing pets? Rumor holds that PETA workers are abducting family pets and euthanizing them. And uh, like I was saying, this wasn't just some weird you know, rumor from a Reddit page or something. Uh, I had read a a specific story about, you know, a specific family having their pet uh, stolen and euthanized on the Huffington Post. And this says mixture. So they're not saying it's false. They're saying it's mixture. What's true? PETA associates have been involved in some incidents involving the alleged theft and or euthanization of family pets. What's false? 
Pedo workers do not routinely lure pets away from families for the sole purpose of euthanizing the animals. And so, and once again, this is unscripted, uh, and I'm just kind of riffing here, but I almost wonder if it's something like maybe you have these young, impressionable people uh, who are working for PETA, and maybe PETA encourages them to find uh, animals that meet the requirements for, you know, needing to be euthanized, you know, unwanted strays or whatever, and these overzealous people, and in some you know, isolated cases end up, as horrific as it is, you know, taking family pets, luring family pets away and, and euthanizing them. I don't know. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, what's going on behind the scenes there, but it's obviously really disturbing. And there's probably few things that could bring me to violence, but if someone came and, you know, lured my pet away or stole my pet and had it uh, euthanized, I would be opening up a king-size can of whoop-ass. abso freaking lootly Like most decent people, I consider my dog to be, or my dogs, you know, in the past, to be members of the family. And when you lose a dog, you know, it's like having your heart ripped out. So if someone intentionally took my dog and put her down, oh, forget about it, man. It'd be John Wick time up in here. But <laughs> any uh, way... So, but my point was, I was going to say in fairness to PETA, even though I have my issues with them, it seems kind of far-fetched that they would pay someone to, you know, skin an animal alive. And I don't want to say that I know for certain either way. Uh, you never know. I mean, you can imagine a scenario where someone might be so ideologically twisted or whatever that for the cause, they're willing to do some, you know, horrible things. But I don't know, man. Yeah, like paying someone to, you know, videotape a animal being skinned alive so they can say, then say, oh, look at the horrors of the fur trade, you know. Um, I think mo most likely it's probably just negative spin coming from their detractors because there's multiple videos out there of animals being skinned alive. And it looks like it's legitimately coming from, uh, you know, fur farms on the other side of the globe. I guess a lot of fur actually comes from China. And uh, if you're to believe what they said in these documentaries I saw, sometimes the fur's even probably intentionally mislabeled. It's even possible that sometimes you're getting uh, cat or dog fur, which, I mean, is nightmarish as it is to think about. Um and I actually remember seeing, uh, I forget where it was, if it was in one of those documentaries or it was just a YouTube video I saw, but it looked like a little beagle. And there was a dog that was partially skinned and it escaped and it was found and rescued. And this was somewhere in Asia, uh, might've been China. And yeah, it looked like a little beagle or something like that. And it's back was just like the skin was flopping down. From what you could tell, it had been almost, I guess you could say surgically, you know, for lack of a better word. But it had been precisely cut with a knife or something. And there was like two flaps of, of skin just hanging off the dog. And the dog was found and luckily uh, rescued. Um, just really horrible stuff. But I think the same footage was in both documentaries. I should just say... Okay, so here's what happened. I 
I discussed this a little in uh, last week's episode. I had been hearing a lot about this documentary, The Game Changers. A lot of controversy surrounding it. You know, you got vegans and carnivores, you know, uh, fighting and feuding over it online and everything. And so I thought, let me check it out for myself. And if you're a longtime listener, then you'll know I'm a, you know, a a Joe Rogan fan. Uh, I sometimes call him out on certain things. I don't always agree with him. But in general, I I like Joe Rogan. I'm a longtime listener of his uh, podcast. And uh, he did a few different segments uh, on the Game Changers. And even had, uh, actually had a couple of episodes that were solely dedicated to the topic. There's this ex-vegan named Chris Kresser, who uh, Joe Rogan has had on a few times, and he had him on, and they basically just dragged their asses all over the Game Changers, just Joe Rogan and Chris Kresser. Then they had James Wilkes, the um, Mish... Mish, yeah, I can talk. <laughs> Duhas Mish. The uh, mixed martial artist behind the Game Changers. They had him on to debate Chris Kresser. And that was a long episode. That was part, maybe like a three or four hour episode. And that was really uh, interesting. And I actually saw that debate after having seen the Game Changers. And uh, yes, I was rooting for James Wilkes. And I described it as interesting, but it was actually, that might be a euphemism for uh, sometimes, you know, very tedious and frustrating. It was a bit of like a circular pissing match at times. And even though it was uh, uh, this four hour uh, debate, uh, there was probably only, you know, so so much takeaway you could get from watching it. But I think James Wilkes, I was almost going to talk about it like it was a UFC fight, did get a, a few really good shots in. And I think uh, the key moment where he really kind of landed a devastating blow to continue with the fighting analogy to Chris Kresser, you know, was on the, the topic of B12. Go away, notifications. I got this, this stupid game I downloaded and uh, Wish.com sending me all these notifications. Anyway, so if you weren't aware, B12 is this point of contention that uh, vegans and you know pro-meat or whatever advocates uh, battle over all the time. And so the pro-meat people, I guess as we'll call them, um, suggest that you know B12, which is a, a very vital nutrient, uh, I believe, for uh, neurological functioning and all that, um, they say that you need to eat meat to get B12. And even some uh, vegans, uh, often vegans, will just it come right out and admit it that B12 can be hard to get on a plant-based diet. So they think that people should take B12 supplements. And, you know, it's as easy as that. If if you're going plant-based, take B12 supplements. And supposedly even people who have omnivorous diets or meat-based diets can also be, just people in general tend to be vitamin B12 deficient. And uh, there was actually a story in the news recently that, you know, made headlines that scientists discovered a plant that has uh, B12 in it. I believe it's called duckweed. But it, yeah, it's a natural plant source of uh, B12. Um, and the point that James Wilkes was making is that meat eaters often stress the importance of B12 and how you need to get it from meat. And what James Wilkes claims in the Game Changers 
is that uh, B12, ironically, is often, it needs to be given to animals as a supplement. So you think you're getting B12 naturally from, you know, the, the animal meat you're eating, but often it's the case that um, they lack it, so they're being uh, given it as a supplement. And it's pretty weird, but uh, this was kind of like an interesting little tidbit of information that I learned. I was like, wow, that B12 isn't naturally occurring in animals, that both animals and humans used to get B12 from bacteria that you would find, uh, you know, in soil, on plants, in water and stuff like that. But now um, everything's so sanitized that animals have to be given B12. In some cases, I'm not saying this is always the case. Um, and, and I think that was something that wasn't really clarified when Chris Kresser and James Wilkes went head-to-head -head on Rogan, uh, whether or not, or how often animals need to be supplemented with B12. Um, but anyway, Chris Kresser had tried to claim that there is no such thing as a B12 supplement for animals, or that animals were never, you know, livestock was never given B12. And damn, it was like a big takedown moment on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast on this episode where, you know, Wilkes came prepared. He had a whole slideshow and everything. And uh, he had slides showing images of B12 supplements, all different products for different farm animals, including cows, B12 for ruminant animals, etc., uh, and so uh, Chris Kresser was forced to admit right there on Joe Rogan's show that I was wrong. And that was kind of a fun moment. I definitely experienced some schadenfreude there. Because I don't know if it's just his natural demeanor or mannerisms, but Chris Kresser almost tries to come across like he's always right. He knows everything. You know what I mean? And bam, he had to admit I was wrong. You know, <laughs> uh, animals are given B12 supplements. And in fairness to uh, Kresser, maybe it was just cows specifically that he was wrong about. He may not have made the blanket claim that no animals are, you know, never given uh, B12. It may have been cows specifically, but nevertheless, he was wrong. And uh, yeah, now that I think about it, I think Kresser may have claimed that cattle specifically never received B12 supplementation. And uh, Wilkes blew him out of the water with his slideshow. And vitamin D is another point of contention. And uh, my, my mind's always in the gutter, so I was just thinking, is vitamin D like a euphemism for something else? Giving someone the D. But <laughs> I digress, and my apologies for that. Um, but yeah, it's another point of contention. And I think, uh, and this is something I didn't know before, I think it's in Canada that the government actually requires that vitamin D be added to, uh, to dairy, to milk. And I believe in the U.S., there's a long, long tradition of vitamin D being voluntarily added to uh, dairy by um, dairy farmers or whatever. And I think that goes back to like the 1900s and uh, the widespread occurrence of rickets. And I think that had something to do with um, child labor. There's a lot of children working and they weren't out in the sun. And so uh, rickets actually became uh, rather common. 
But anyway, why am I talking about this? Oh yeah, so I was kind of giving you some insight into how my uh, recent kind of preoccupation with animal welfare came to be. Even though, like I said, it's something that I've been concerned with for a long time, what got me into this state where I was kind of preoccupied, really preoccupied with it lately. And it was uh, the Game Changers. So there was so much buzz around this documentary that I decided to watch it for myself. And I have to say that uh, even though I am aware, aware of some of the criticisms of the documentary and some of those criticisms may have merit, nevertheless, just as a whole, I actually love the documentary. And I think I've watched it like four times now. It kind of gets me pumped and I'll actually watch this documentary while I'm working out or riding my exercise bike. And uh, yeah, it's, just, it's kind of like an, an inspirational, feel-good documentary. And it's not just James Wilkes behind it. Uh, I think two of the co-producers are Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And James Cameron, who I believe is vegan, actually uh, is also behind the film. And just in keeping with the spirit of intellectual honesty, I'll lay out some of the criticisms that I think may be valid uh, about the film. There's one particular scene that got people really talking and it's kind of uh, this comical scene, but also a very kind of eye-opening scene if uh, what it suggests is accurate, you know? But it has three young athletes um, all eat different meals, and then they're wearing this contraption that I guess, you know, you would be outfitted with if you want to see a urologist or whatever that tests uh, the quality of your erections. And... So they eat like a plant-based meal, an animal-based meal. And I think uh, one of them was uh, happened to be a vegan. So he had a plant-based meal uh, in both times around. And then uh, they the doctor analyzed the results. And the results seemed to be suggesting that that a plant-based diet is significantly better for your sexual functioning, for your erectile health, etc. And uh, the explanation behind that is that in general, a plant-based diet is supposedly better for your cardiovascular health and that the cholesterol, the, the fat that you get from an animal-based diet can you know clog your arteries and that affects circulation in general including uh you know blood flow to your penis and that uh supposedly and there's another segment of the documentary where they tackle this that a high cholesterol diet doesn't just catch up with you in the long run, but that you can see the impact almost immediately after eating a high cholesterol or fatty meal. And for athletes, you know, this is supposedly what they are suggesting is that what you choose to eat on a given day shortly after that can impact your, your athletic performance via the impact it has on your endothelial functioning. Uh, the endothelium is just, it's, I believe it's that lining inside the arteries and it's the, the plaques that build up in there, etc. And the, you know, the, um, 
the fats that clog it, et cetera, that can impact your cardiovascular health. And even in the short term, you know, almost right away, it can impact your, it can impact your athletic performance. Supposedly, that's what the movie suggests. And some people were critical in particular of the boner segment uh, specifically. And, and some of the critics were actual uh, doctors themselves who were saying, you know, trying to emphasize the point that this wasn't a legitimate uh, medical test or whatever. But in fairness to the film, and the, I believe the guy, uh, I, I forget what his exact position is, but the guy who administers this test in the movie actually is a respected doctor. Um, and this guy stresses in the film, or, or just states bluntly, that, hey, this isn't a valid or official scientific study, but nevertheless, the results do seem to suggest that eating a high cholesterol or animal-based fatty meal can affect your erectile health, not just in the long run, but also, you know, almost immediately. So I guess, you know, it was kind of a fun, unofficial study, but nevertheless, one that the doctor felt uh, made an important point regarding... Uh, cholesterol or animal-based foods and the impact on cardiovascular health, etc. Then an interesting uh, criticism that Joe Rogan had, and I had never, you know, thought about this, and I almost felt stupid for not uh, <laughs> catching on myself, is that there's certain moments in the documentary that appear to be reenactments, and yet they never state explicitly that it is a reenactment and so Rogan thought that was kind of deceptive and I actually do agree that you know in the spirit of intellectual honesty that should be clearly stated when something's a reenactment but in fairness to uh James Wilkes uh, I was watching an interview with him recently and I think he was saying that even though this um I think the game changers came out in 2018 maybe 2018 2019 but he said that the documentary, work on the documentary began as early as it might have been 2012 or something like that. That, uh, as I was saying earlier, he uh, is, or he might be retired or was, a mixed martial artist. And uh, actually, there's footage in the film of him winning a fight. And Joe Rogan, you know, who is an announcer for the UFC, is actually, you know, I, I believe he's there when... Uh, when James Wilkes wins. I can't remember if we actually see him in that scene, but he's at least announcing uh, James Wilkes, uh, his win. I think we do see Rogan on screen when Nate Diaz wins over Conor McGregor. And even if you don't follow the UFC, uh, most of us are probably aware of Conor McGregor. He's this kind of larger-than-life, uh, kind of in-your-face uh, UFC personality. And... The way the documentary spins it is that Conor McGregor, you know, pigged out on meat <laughs> before the fight. Uh, you know, he was, and he does admit this that he uh, and McGregor actually does seem to cite this as one of the reasons he lost. That he was primarily eating steaks uh, before the fight, and Nate Diaz was supposedly eating a plant-based diet. And I guess one of the criticisms people had is that. Technically, Nate Diaz isn't a vegan or a vegetarian. Uh, I think he may technically eat things like 
eggs and some fish and, and things like that, but he is primarily plant-based. So some people took issue with the fact that uh, maybe it seemed to be painting a picture that Nate Diaz was vegan or something like that when he technically wasn't. But regarding the quote-unquote reenactments, and I'll put reenactments in quotes <laughs> because uh, I, I'm, I don't know with uh, 100% certainty whether they, whether they were or not uh, reenactments. Um, but in fairness to Wilkes, once again, since supposedly work on the, on the film, on the documentary started so long ago, it is possible that some of these moments that Rogan is considering reenactments were actually genuinely caught on film at the time. One, I think there's a couple of moments Rogan points to. One is when we see James Wilkes kind of sitting on the couch with, uh, you know, his injured knees or whatever, and he's researching uh, for ways to get better. And that's how he first, you know, kind of awoke to this whole plant-based thing. And uh, so I think Rogan was suggesting that that was probably a reenactment, that a camera didn't just happen to be around when he was originally, you know, uh, nursing his injuries or whatever. And then another point is uh, they showed James Wilkes using the, the so-called battle ropes and supposedly, you know, it just happened that they caught on film the moment when he was fueled by a plant-based diet and went like almost an hour beyond his record or something like that for the battle ropes, you know? And uh, I don't know. Maybe it was caught on film. Maybe it's a reenactment. I have no idea. And the last thing that drew a lot of criticism, or maybe I should say the first thing, because it's discussed early on in the documentary, one of the first things that's brought up, is this uh, claim that the Roman gladiators, and I discussed this in last week's episode, that the Roman gladiators were supposedly predominantly plant-based. And this is a uh, point of, an, an academic point of contention. And this is probably an unnecessary neurotic self-correction, but I should probably stress that it was their diet that was supposedly uh, plant, predominantly plant-based, not the gladiators themselves. I'm just picturing like Swamp Thing wearing a gladiator helmet. <laughs> but I think that the claim partially at least hinges on this one Latin word. I think it's hodiari or something like that, a term which means barley eaters or something like that. Uh, I think the guy, the like German sounding guy, uh, the scientist in the movie says barley munchers, but for some reason I don't like the word munchers. <clears throat> anyway, as someone who uh, has an interest in ancient history, uh, I'm actually kind of uh, really fascinated by that topic. And at some point down the road, I might actually do a little documentary episode that tries to... Uh, really dig in and find out whether uh, this claim that they were predominantly plant-based is accurate or not. But I think the defense that James Wilkes kind of offers is that uh, it, that's kind of neither here nor there, that he's not saying with one way or another whether this is true. This was just kind of the starting point. This was kind of the catalyst that got him researching what a plant-based diet could do for athletes. But whether that's a fitting defense or not, I'll let you decide. But yeah, so seeing the game changers is what, uh, you know, led me to kind of research veganism more. I started watching some uh, some vegan YouTube uh, content creators, their videos. 
and I had heard this documentary called Dominion referenced a number of times. And there was this little voice in the back of my head saying, you probably shouldn't watch this. It's probably going to really disturb you. It's like when you, uh, back in the day, you still look at something on Rotten.com and then, you know, you'd be sent into this kind of depressed slump for days. But of course, I didn't heed my own advice. I ended up watching it. And I watched a similar documentary called Earthlings. And this, I have this kind of hazy memory of... uh, Maybe a few years back when I was constantly like binging on atheist versus theist debates, um, I remember seeing a debate. I think it wasn't necessarily on religion or atheism, but I think it was uh, this debate where there were multiple opponents on either side. You know, Victor Stenger might have been one of them. Uh, and there was another guy who, I'm trying to think if he's from Australia, I don't remember, he, he was like a, maybe a middle-aged dude, kind of like portly with a mustache, but he was a nice guy who had a love for animals, you know, and he was talking about this kind of like idea of earthlings or the film earthlings, you know, I don't remember much, I just remember hearing the name of that documentary a long time ago, and this idea of considering all of us on planet Earth, all the different species, as fellow Earthlings, you know? And uh, so I watched Dominion and Earthlings, and I think both of them are actually narrated by Joaquin Phoenix, who, as I mentioned in the last episode, is actually a, uh, a vegan. And actually, just so I don't have to correct it later, I think, uh, to be specific or precise, I think Joaquin Phoenix is only one of the narrators of Dominion. I think there's different celebrity narrators throughout it. I think he does have a few segments, though. But Dominion and Earthlings are really meant to kind of wake people up to the horrors of factory farming, etc. So, like, these movies are not for the faint of heart. They are brutal to watch, and they are super graphic. And I actually started a playlist on the uh, Weekend Out YouTube channel that I called... uh, Uh, vegan documentaries, and you can actually find them there if you're uh, feeling brave. And speaking of animals, I just let my dog in the room, so if you hear any weird little uh, snortles or chorts, are either of those words, snortel, chort? (laughs) And yeah, it seems like an apt description of the noises a uh, chihuahua makes. But anyway, I might as well uh, return to that demented list I've been keeping on my, uh, my iPad. And I should mention that I watched uh, both Dominion and Earthlings again a second time just in preparation for doing this episode. And uh, damn, I'm a glutton for punishment. Some things I was a little more inured to the second time around, but some things still really got me. And a couple of times I had to actually cover my eyes still. So let me uh, reference the notes I made on Dominion. (laughs) I start out by, uh, I simply jotted down, we are the monsters. (laughs) And uh, I remember when I first watched it, it really seemed like, because I'm kind of a a horror movie buff. Horror movies are one of my favorite movie uh, genres. But it's funny, there's two things in horror movies that bother me. I can watch the most grisly stuff in a horror movie, But, and even though, obviously, I know it's fake, you know, these things still get me. If an animal's 
you know, harmed in a movie. And it seems like, oh, wait, for some reason, the dog or, you know, the cat always gets it. That's how you know the monster or the psychos near because <laughs> you hear the, uh, the, the dog howl in pain or something, you know. Um, if an animal's hurt in a movie and also scenes that, you know, that depict sexual assault. I remember there was this big wave of horror remakes, uh, you know, some years back. There was like, a remake of I Spit on Your Grave, Last House on the Left, uh, Straw Dogs. And all those movies had these kind of like graphic sexual assault scenes. And whenever I'm watching a movie and there's something like that, like if I'm watching at home, I'll have to like pause it. And I'm like, oh man, do I want to continue watching this damn movie? And for some reason, yeah, animals getting harmed in scenes like that really have a negative effect on me but either than that you know i can watch people get chopped up i can watch all sorts of grisly stuff but watching um dominion and earthlings uh you know it was almost it was like watching a real life horror movie uh seeing how horrifically these animals were treated by humans and in some cases just how sadistic the people were uh how absolutely indifferent they seem to the uh to the suffering of these animals and how they even seem to take glee in inflicting that suffering and in fairness and i i thought a lot about this i imagine um that that line of work probably takes its toll on you mentally and emotionally. There may be some people who are kind of like rotten apples who are the perfect fit for that work to begin with. And then there might be people who aren't necessarily bad people to start off, but working a job that requires you to kill uh, and butcher other living beings every day or to send living beings to their death, that probably, you know, maybe hardens you or kind of warps you to some degree or desensitizes you in, in some fashion. But yeah, uh, one thing I found uh, especially kind of haunting or eerie is that animals seem to really be able to sense when, you know, they're on their way to the chopping block. You know, maybe it's, uh, I don't know what, the smell of the blood, the screams of the other animals. So it might not even be like a sixth sense type of thing, you know. it's. Uh, I think we don't give animals enough credit. I mean, we are animals. You know, we're technically primates. <laughs> we're a member of the, the great ape family. And other animals, especially our fellow mammals, for the most part have, you know, anatomically the same equipment we do, a uh, nervous system and everything. And I think because of our mastery of language and abstract thought, our ability to, you know, build things, etc., we assume that, well, I don't mean me or you. I mean just the, the kind of royal we that people in general, I think, tend to not give animals enough credit regarding how aware and sentient they are. And so I think, you know, an animal that's seeing other animals... Uh, getting butchered before its eyes that can smell the, the blood of other animals, hear, you know, the blood-curdling screams of uh, members of its own species as they're butchered. It makes sense that they'd be fearful or apprehensive, you know? 
Um, and, and that's to their credit. They're not dumb. And it reminds me, as a kind of like palate cleanser, after I watched those documentaries for the second time, I watched some videos from the Dodo, you know, these kind of feel-good, positive animal stories. And I was watching one particular video where it was showing this cow that a family had kind of rescued and taken in. And I couldn't believe how smart this cow was. I mean, uh, the, the family had a kind of like a French door to the back of their house with one of those long kind of handles. And the cow just like nonchalantly lifted up the handle with its nose and walked right in the house, you know? And we know that pigs are at least as smart as dogs. And anyone who's owned a dog, I mean, you know how, yeah, they can be goofy sometimes, but you also know how tuned in they can be to things, how aware they are, how how emotional they can be. And, uh, wow. But yeah, so the animals know their time is up and they don't want to go forward. And, uh, you know, this, this usually takes place inside some dark, grungy, you know, slaughterhouse or whatever. Um, and there'll be some kind of like cement pathway that the animal has to go down so it can be quote unquote processed. And these animals understandably don't want to go forward. And, uh, so the workers have to beat the animals and yell and frighten them even further to get them to go. So they'll take like these big paddles and whether it's a pig or a cow, they'll just beat the animal, yell at it, swear at it, and uh, drive this uh, reluctant animal forward towards its death. And the process usually requires, you know, with most animals, that they be stunned first before they're dispatched, butchered, slaughtered, whatever. And for larger animals, like pigs and cows, they use what they call a captive bolt gun. And as I understand it, uh, the bolt method of execution was invented with the intention of being, you know, more humane and giving the animal a quick death. But both with the electric stunning and uh, the captive bolt gun, uh, it, it, it doesn't always take the first time. And so you end up with uh, this poor frightened animal being repeatedly shocked uh, with a, you know, with an electric prod or whatever, or uh, repeatedly shot in the head because, you know, the person can't find the precise area or whatever. And especially with pigs, the screams are so haunting and uh, agonized that you'll see that the, um, the workers, they wear these kind of, you know, these noise-canceling headphones or whatever they are to block out the screams of the animals uh, that they're basically torturing and killing. So you'll see like, often like a young, a young guy, uh, some young worker or whatever, just nonchalantly kind of standing there with the headphones on, maybe looking at the animal, maybe not, and just going to town with this electric prod or, you know, someone, uh, like I said, using a captive bolt gun and having to uh, shoot the animal in the head more than once while it's screaming or whatever. 
And I noticed there's another kind of uh, stunner they use that it's kind of forked, like this two-pronged thing. And uh, an animal will be on like a conveyor belt, like maybe a calf or, or a sheep or something like that. And they're just pressing down repeatedly, shocking this animal, trying to get it to, uh, you know, be uh, sufficiently stunned, I guess. And with uh, all the animals in general, there seem to be uh, a lot of cases where they're not sufficiently stunned. In the case of uh, chickens and turkeys, they're usually in factory farms. They're hung up uh, by their feet, so they're dangling um, upside down. And the workers have it so down pat that's really this quick process. They quickly clamp the bird's feet in so it's hanging upside down with, uh, you know, other birds side by side and they're moving down this mechanized line and they're supposed to be dunked in what's called a stun bath so this kind of electrified water that's supposed to stun them so they're not fully conscious when their throats are cut but if a bird just lifts its head up it'll miss the stun bath it will be fully awake as this mechanized blade cuts its throat so it's just absolutely crazy and I think with pigs, either after they've uh, supposed to be stunned or killed, they're dunked into scalding water to get rid of all the hair off of them. And sometimes pigs end up conscious at that point, still conscious. And you'll have a pig that after being tortured, you know, uh, struck with a bolt or uh, or electrocuted uh, with, a, with a prod, um, it's its life ends with it being drowned in, in scalding water. And cows, too, sometimes they're fully conscious at the end, not having been sufficiently stunned. So their throats are slit while they're full. I'm sorry again, man. I told you guys this is going to be graphic. So you'll have, you know, a giant cow hanging upside down, throat slit, thrashing around on a hook or whatever, or a... Uh, thrashing around in its own blood on a floor. And I remember this one part that was especially disturbing. It was showing a cow being killed in what was supposed to be a kosher facility, you know, uh, the cow being killed according to kosher dietary laws. And I remember that uh, the scene kind of conflicted with what I would expect to be uh, kosher conditions. Um, it was just, you know, Another gross, industrial, gritty, grimy-looking uh, factory farm environment. And for some reason, kosher, you know, brings to mind images of maybe like old-school Orthodox Jews performing some kind of ritual in like a clean environment or something. I don't know. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, but no, it's just some dudes in uh, hard hats and plastic covering their white butcher jackets or whatever. And is really weird. It almost reminded me of like a Silent Hill version of uh, The Big Wheel on The Price is Right or something. There was just this big metal industrial wheel contraption. And for some reason, it's spinning this big... Uh, I, I'm trying. It might have been a steer, uh, a big male. I almost said male cow. Cows are female, you know. Uh, but it, this big steer or whatever, it's like tumbling it around, almost like it was in like a clothes dryer or something. And uh, I'm sure that must add to the animal's unease or distress or fear or disorientation, you know. 
And eventually, uh, you know, the, the wheel stops moving and the animal is upside down with its neck and head hanging out. And they basically, it's nasty. I mean, it's, it's so brutal. They basically uh, just rip the thing, cut and rip the thing's throat out. And yet it's still alive. And the thing is dumped out of the wheel onto this floor, thrashing around in, in its final moments in, um, in in a pool of its own blood with its throat hanging out. And uh, I think Joaquin Phoenix, who is narrating it, is making the point that uh, if this is meant to be kosher or whatever, it's this was neither a clean nor merciful death. And the thought occurred to me a few times that just by their nature, animals like uh, cows and pigs, they're such large animals with such, uh, you know, large neck. Well, a pig almost looks like it doesn't have a neck, but you know what I mean, that we've been killing these things throughout history. And prior to the captive bolt gun, the most quote-unquote humane way there probably was to kill one was by slitting its throat, which is probably what traditionally has been done. And uh, not really humane. The, the poor animal ends up having to bleed out. You know, it's such a massive animal. It's not like a chicken where you lop its head off or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, eventually came along the captive bolt gun. I guess the intention behind it was kind of nice it's still you're still basically killing the animal but they're trying to kill it in a more humane way but i like i said even with the captive bolt gun it uh uh it often takes more than one attempt but yeah i remember thinking while i was first watching dominion that you know we are the monsters we are the ogres the thing the things that go bump in the night to these other creatures these other animals um and unlike a horror movie, it's not fake. It's the real deal. These things basically get tortured and butchered, uh, these other living beings, by uh, members of our species who are rough handling them, swearing at them, you know, tossing them around, uh, kicking them, beating them, and sometimes even laughing at their fear and suffering. It was really hard to watch. I don't know what happened, but for some reason, they showed this one clip where for some reason there's a pig, there's this giant pig outside of the factory farm, outside of the building. And I don't know why they took it outside or how it got outside, but there are these workers standing around and they're like dropping a cinder block on this this prone pig's head. It's just lying on its side and they're basically laughing and joking. And there's really callous stuff I've seen in the past too, like... Uh, twirling piglets around, uh, smashing them against the ground, pig, you know, piglets that, I don't know why, either for the fun of it or because they think they're pigs that aren't going to make it or aren't healthy enough. Uh, people sitting on turkeys, basically using a living animal as a seat while they're doing their work or whatever. And the conditions pigs are kept in on these factory farms or whatever is really just disgraceful. Uh, Pigs are often kept in these things called gestation crates. A pregnant sow with no room to turn around. If it's lucky, maybe it can take one or two steps forward or backwards. And uh, when they give birth, they end up with uh, sometimes piglets get crushed underneath their trapped mother. Uh, they're showing uh, piglets just lying 
on a concrete floor, flies all over them. Um, just really awful stuff. And there's what they call waste pits underneath the pigs. Uh, sometimes pigs fall into the waste pits and drown basically in the, in liquid feces or whatever. Awful. And as many people have pointed out, including uh, Christopher Hitchens and God is Not Great, there's a section of the book called uh, Why Heaven Hates Ham, A Brief Digression on the, on the Pig, or something like that. Something like that, I'm paraphrasing. And Hitchens points out, as many others have, that if given the proper room to roam, etc., pigs are actually fairly clean animals, uh, good parents, you know, uh, they won't go to the bathroom where they sleep. And so these pigs are kept in gestation crates uh, or small areas, forced to go to the bathroom where they live, uh, the danger of falling into these waste pits. Uh, and they, without anesthetic, they will, when piglets are born, sometimes they'll cut their teeth dock their tails, their airs, because when they're kept in these uh, close quarters, they get stressed out and will sometimes even resort to violence or cannibalism. And that's another thing, man. Even if uh, you don't care about animals, just the, uh, the unsanitary conditions alone should turn you off, you know what I mean? Pigs in these dark, grungy factory farms, uh, often with sores and tumors on them. Uh, just really gross stuff. And I think, you know, that's why they have these ag-gag laws, you know. Uh, they don't want anyone reporting on what goes inside here or, or you know, escaping with revealing footage of what goes on inside there. Because they know if people saw the conditions the animals are kept in or, you know, how brutally they're treated, uh, that would turn a lot of people off, man. All right, I'm back. So I started recording this last night, which was uh, Sunday, and uh, I had to call it quits after a while because I had to wake up early this morning to go to the dentist and then, and then directly from there to go to work. So, all right, where the heck was I? Oh yeah, I believe I was talking about so-called ag-gag laws and how if people saw how the sausage is made, literally in this case, uh, that might have a kind of negative or deleterious effect on the meat industry. And that actually reminds me of a story my father told me the other day. Uh, and it's funny, I, I kind of promised myself as I found myself being more preoccupied by... Uh, these concerns about uh, the animal welfare, that I wasn't going to proselytize or burden others with my crisis of conscience. I didn't want to be that annoying person who, you know, when they first get in, you know, really get into something, they start uh, trying to push it on everybody else or whatever, or the annoying person who tells everyone else they, you know, they shouldn't be eating meat just because, you know, they've kind of uh, opened their eyes a bit to the meat industry. Although I do have to say that you can make a philosophical argument that if you really believe what's happening is unjust and that innocent beings are suffering needlessly, that uh, you, you could argue that you have a moral duty to proselytize or whatever, you know? Um, but anyway, 
So I happened to be talking to my parents, and the subject of health came up for some reason of, you know, health and diet. And it's weird because I don't really open up much uh, to my family, but it was one of those rare occasions where I actually had a conversation with uh, family members. And it's kind of sad saying that because I work side by side with my brother every day, and we don't really talk either. Um, uh, it's weird. I'm almost like a different person while I'm at work. I kind of shut down. I'm like an automaton. I just take orders, uh, do what I, I have to do and wait for the day to be over, you know? Uh, that's sad. That is. One of these days I have to get out of the family business. But anyway, so I ended up kind of opening up a little and talking about you know, the documentaries I had been watching and what I, you know, what I had learned about uh, not just what animals are put through on factory farms, etc., but how there, there can also be dietary concerns regarding, you know, eating too much meat or whatever. And my father already knows that because he probably doesn't want me talking about this on, on the air or whatever, but... Uh, he's been battling high cholesterol and things like that for a long time. And, it, and his... Uh, doctors have told him, you know, um, that cholesterol comes from animal products, you know. And he told me a story he had never told me before. He said that when he was a kid, he was offered uh, this job, just cleaning up or something like that, at a local butcher shop. And he saw something he wasn't meant to see. I guess there was a door open that shouldn't have been open or something. And he saw uh, supposedly a calf hanging from the ceiling and a guy with a sledgehammer, and he said the guy just lifted up the sledgehammer so he could really go full swing, you know, and just whack the uh, the calf in the head. And he said, understandably, that that really disturbed him and stuck with him for a long time. And uh, I guess he still thinks about it from time to time. You know, he mentioned it while we were talking. And man, you know, I apologize again that this is such a gruesome episode. And it might sound like I'm just rattling off a laundry list of horrors. But uh, once again, you know, this is unscripted. And it's kind of a process. I'm just trying to move through all the notes I made of things that really affected me while watching these documentaries. And then hopefully I'll finish by, you know, just kind of encapsulating my philosophy and my take on all of it. Oh, yeah. So I believe I read a couple of these strange notes at the top of the show. Baboon head torture, Hieronymus Bosch nightmare. <laughs> okay, so I know that sounds batshit crazy, but uh, here's what, uh, you know, was going through my mind. I may have mentioned Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, I, I think it might technically, it's supposed to be pronounced boss, but no one pronounces it that way. I think everyone says Hieronymus Bosch. I may have mentioned him on the show. He's one of my favorite painters. He's a medieval Dutch painter, probably most well-known for his Garden of Earthly Delights triptych. Um, and he's known for his really strange and lurid imagery, um, kind of like hellscapes and things like that. And when I was looking at some of the weird stuff that animals are put through just like these weird it almost reminded me of um things that you'd see in medieval depictions of hell like these weird bizarre tortures you know and um i guess they were doing research on a baboon to try to see if they could learn something about what a person 
uh, goes through during a car accident or something like that, or you know, uh, or when they sustain a, a massive head injury or something. So the baboon is lying on a table strapped down, and its head is in some kind of weird metal contraption, so it almost looks like its head is in a weird helmet or something. And every once in a while, like, just, like, really powerful, um, with a lot of, like, force or motion, you'd hear this gigantic mechanical sound, and it would just rack the baboon's head to the side violently and then move back into place. And it would happen again. You'd hear the big mechanized sound and bam, it would rack the, uh, the baboon's head. And as someone who, you know, I think at least in part, the headaches that I probably talk about too often on the show, um, I, I think at least in part, those are the result of a couple of bad car accidents I was in when I was in my like late teens, early 20s. Um, just really quickly, I'll try to be as concise as possible. Um, the, the first one happened when I was working with a friend and we went to get lunch. He was driving and he just sped through an intersection and a car T-boned us and hit the passenger side. I was the passenger and my head went off the side window, off the front, uh, windshield and, you know, you have all the... It's very common. People have, like, a big adrenaline rush when they're in an accident. And they don't even realize that anything's wrong. And so I didn't... When they... Uh, the first responders or whatever offered me medical assistance. I'm like, no, I'm all right, you know. And it wasn't until after that I started the field. Kind of, I was like... I think I was at the local mall walking around with friends. I just felt, like, off. You know, I felt, like, really strange and foggy. And um, shortly after that... I was driving to where my father's office used to be in Somerville, Mass. I was on the highway and it was a rainy day, bumper the bumper traffic. And a guy, a young guy in a big white van was speeding and he couldn't stop in time. And he just slammed into uh, the bumper the bumper traffic and caused a pileup. And I was in that line of cars. And my car actually, it was a little Dodge Shadow. I got uh, pushed off the, the um, highway down into a ditch and my car was stopped by a tree. And the back of the car was, dis- it was basically crumpled like an accordion. Um, airbag went off in my face and everything. And basically the next day I had to use my hands and, and use the strength in my arms to lift my uh, head off the pillow in the morning. That's how stiff and sore and just messed up my uh, head and neck were. And I I actually read about, because I always wonder, I'm like, some people try to tell me these migraines are hereditary. Once in a while, I, I would have the odd migraine on a rainy day or something, but I did not have daily headaches. And I read that, it sucks, but people who are prone to headaches, um migraines, reoccurring headaches, things like that, and then sustain head trauma, uh, it's not uncommon for the headaches to then become chronic, even daily. So my guess is it's probably something like that. It's probably partly hereditary, partly a a result of uh, head and neck trauma. But I bring this up because I could really empathize with that baboon. And I felt like, why would someone... I know, I know... um, Obviously, uh, they weren't just 
torturing this animal for the hell of it, they thought they could learn something to help uh, mankind or whatever, to better treat humans who sustain such injuries. But still, just thinking about that poor creature and what they were doing to it, you know what I mean? And if we're going to get, you know, ghoulish and gruesome, let's go all in. <laughs> Why stop now? And this reminds me of something I saw on an old documentary that really bothered me. It may have been, I think it was on like, you know, just cable TV back in the day, like on the History Channel or Discovery or something. And they were talking about um, this pioneering doctor who... Uh, was experimenting on monkeys to try to see if he could successfully transplant a head. And so he basically, you know, severed a monkey's head and uh, moved it onto the body of another monkey and, you know, attached all the arteries and whatnot. And they show footage of this poor little monkey. It looked like a spider monkey or something like that. Um, Almost like a, you know, a cute little monkey you'd see in like old uh, Three Stooges, uh, not cartoons, but old Three Stooges episodes or maybe like Ross's uh, monkey on Friends or something. And they show the monkey and it's looking around, you know, and it looks like blood is coming out of its nose. And I think it, it, it survived for a little bit, but it, it died soon after. And um, as someone who loves animals, I've always had an issue with uh, with animal testing, especially, especially for unnecessary things, shit like cosmetics and, you know, pouring chemicals into, ra into rabbits' eyes and stuff like that. That's horrible. That's, I mean, completely unnecessary. Um, and even though I don't like it, I could maybe, maybe see the moral argument that if you could potentially save human lives by experimenting on animals. Yes, someone could probably make that moral argument. But once again, as an animal lover, I just, uh, I, I hate thinking about or seeing what those animals are put through. And I want to believe it, but I don't know if it's necessary, necessarily true or not. But in one of those documentaries I watched, I think it might have been Earthlings, and they he may have said it shortly after that horrific thing with the baboon, but Joaquin Phoenix, who is narrating, he, I think he gives some statistics and he says, if you look at the big picture, like supposedly animal experimentation hasn't really paid off. And in his words, paraphrasing, he says something like, all we've learned is how much mankind can debase itself by sinking to these lows and putting these other living creatures through this kind of crap, you know? And I really would like to believe that, uh, that animal testing doesn't achieve anything and we should just completely put an end to it, you know? But it's probably not as simple, not as black and white as that. And I actually, you know, I... I googled, uh, has animal testing saved lives? And there's all sorts of articles about research that has supposedly uh, benefited mankind, you know, that, uh, you know, animal experimentation that's paid off or whatever. But even, you know, if that's so, I don't think, you know, collectively that means our conscience is clean. Um, 
we still have to face or deal with the fact that these supposed breakthroughs were achieved by going uh, Mengele on other living beings that also have a right to live, you know? Uh, so it, it really is quite, you know, the moral conundrum. And I don't know what the, uh, the answer is. Uh, I imagine most people would probably say, you know, humans first. Hey, if it, if it helps humans, screw, you know, <laughs> what too bad. But uh, I just, I can't shake the fact that, you know, they're living beings too. Um, and they deserve better, you know. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. But it reminds me of how the documentary Earthlings ends. And uh, I have to... <laughs> oh, why do I do this to myself? But uh, this is probably one of those things that I shouldn't admit, but I will. Um, I don't cry very often. It's very rare. I think the last time I cried was probably over just about a decade ago when the dog I have... When the dog I had before the one I have now passed away, you know, and um, but I remember watching the end of Earthlings. I, I wasn't like a blubbering mess, but I felt my eyes welling up. And even though I'm a non-believer, I don't, you know, literally believe in uh, karma in some supernatural sense or anything. There was just something about what Joaquin Phoenix was saying juxtaposed with this imagery of all these different animals. And he says, if what comes around goes around, what do they get for their pain? What do they get, you know? And I remember the thought occurred to me a couple of times for some reason that I thought about Planet, Planet of the Apes, and that might sound weird, but we uh, essentially are living on the Planet of the Apes. The apes have taken over. The apes are us. You know what I mean? And I was thinking about how we're these weird, gangly primate things that have gotten too advanced for their own good in a way. And we're almost like, you know, our closest animal cousin is the chimpanzee. And I think we're almost what you would expect if something like a chimpanzee became too advanced when you look at how brutal chimpanzees can be. And yet, like us, you know, chimpanzees can can be altruistic and compassionate. They can display group solidarity, but they can also be tribalistic and vicious. And it was that whole thing where um, Jane Goodall kind of at one point had to come to grips with the dark side of chimp behavior and the fact that chimps and, ro and these kind of roving bands would um, hunt down lone males from other troops and basically rip them apart, uh, commit infanticide, uh, hunt and eat alive monkeys and things like that. Uh, in a way, that's, I mean, the chimps have taken over, man. <laughs> I don't know. And of course I know we're not directly descended from chimps. Uh, evolution is a branching tree, not a linear line. We share a common ancestor, but you get what I'm saying. But let me continue with my list of horrors. Um, so skinned alive. Yeah, I already talked about that old PETA documentary that showed uh, an animal being skinned alive and talked about how much that bothered me. And um, it looked like the same, not the same footage from the PETA documentary, but Earthlings 
and Dominion seem to both contain the same uh, footage of uh, this animal being skinned alive. And I, I don't know, I don't know if it was a fox or what it was, but, and, and uh, this is going to be graphic once again, you know, and uh, they show like some worker on a Chinese fur farm, fur, they, this is dark, man, this is really dark. But they basically, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but they basically anally electrocute these poor animals. Like they were showing foxes. They capture these wild foxes who've never known captivity. You know, they've only known a life of freedom and, and the, having the ability to roam. And suddenly they're stuffed into a little cage where I think they call it cage madness or something. But they basically just, they literally go stir crazy. They just spin around in circles and pace and weave their heads. And uh, they take one of the foxes and they march it past, you know, the corpses of all these other skinned animals or whatever. And uh, they, they skin the animal and it is so disturbing and so like grotesquely surreal but they show this poor creature, man. You know, it looks like it could be a little dog, like my dog or something. The skin in the fur is completely removed. I guess you'd say, kind of, I think degloved is the term they use when a human is, uh, why do I know that? When uh, If a human has an accident and their scalp is peeled back, you know what I mean? The skin and fur completely removed. So it's just like this, it's just that you see the red, fleshy musculature. And yet, there's these two black eyes. You know, the creature's innocent eyes, doll-like eyes. And around the eyes, I don't know if it was eyelashes or bits of fur that stuck. There's still hair or fur around the eyes. And everything else is just meat. And the creature cranes its neck and looks backwards. Like, just, it's trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And I get so pissed when I see that. And I'm just like, what fucking kind of person does this to another living being? You know what I mean? And I really thought about it. And I'm like, I think there is no satisfactory answer. And it reminds me of, um, you know, it's that old saying or the, the expression about the banality of evil and I think the people who do these, you know, commit these kind of atrocities, um, they're either just so ignorant or so desensitized that they don't even realize how horrific what they're doing, what they're doing is, you know what I mean? Um, just another day on the fur farm for them, you know what I mean? Uh, but I, you know, I feel like no creature, no living creature should ever ever have to experience that that that's just the stuff of nightmares man and just the image of that animal blinking without you know its skin um just evoked so much pathos and anger you know it's ah uh, i don't even know what to say it makes me wish i could go back in time and save it but you can't you know what i mean and uh, you might ask you know, you might be skeptical and say, well, why would an animal be 
anally electrocuted. That's so weird. Or, you know, why would an animal be skinned alive? And it's funny. It see, there seems to be this kind of um, spin campaign coming from the fur industry. Uh, and like I said earlier, you know, there was um, some people were trying to spin it that PETA pay, you know, paid someone to videotape an animal being skinned or something so they could, you know, uh, smear the the fur industry or something. And uh, obviously, like the PETA documentary and these documentaries show different animals being skinned, and there's multiple uh, videos of animals being skinned on um, fur farms out there. And people in the fur trade, if you go online, you know, you'll see all these like search results from people trying to spin things in, in, the, uh, in favor of the, the fur industry. And they and I think there's sites like the truth about fur and all this stuff. And uh, they try to say it makes no sense to skin an animal alive or try to skin an animal alive. Because you want to, you know, make your job as easy as you can. And if an animal's squirming all over the place and fighting back, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. That's not efficient. It's not logical, you know. But it, just like um, the other animals I mentioned, cows, pigs, whatever, uh, poultry, the the processes they usually try to stun the animal first. You know, so it's not like they're um, skinning, you know, a fox that's clawing and biting and flipping out. Um, they that's why they annually electrocute them. They put the the uh, the prod or whatever it is up the thing's backside, make the animal bite down on this, like put a, a metal bit or something in its mouth, electrocute it. It doesn't always take the first time. You know, and then they assume, oh, it's dazed enough. Let's do it. And I guess there's also some belief in these Chinese fur farms that, um, I don't know if it's some, like, superstitious folk belief or something, but that it's better for the fur um, if the animal is still alive when it's removed or something like that. So, yeah, it's not like the animal is flipping out and scratching and clawing. They stun it by electrocuting it. But, I mean, how dazed or, you know, stunned is it? Can you ever be sufficiently dazed or stunned enough that's humane to then remove your skin from your body? You know what I mean? It's crazy. And it could be in some cases that the electrocution is meant to actually kill the animal. But um, if that's the intent, obviously, you know, once again, it doesn't always take. And here's the part where it would probably be in my best interest to tread lightly. Uh, but of course, I'm going to be stupid and enter this uh, terrain anyway, this controversial terrain. Um, and I mentioned the banality of evil. And that perhaps brings up uh, thoughts of the Holocaust. I remember back in the day, early on in this podcast, when I, even then I would talk about kind of animal welfare or whatever. And... Um, I would talk about, I think, how even I was bothered a bit when PETA went, yeah, I, I, I appreciate what they were trying to do, but I thought maybe it was kind of tasteless when they would juxtapose Holocaust imagery with factory farm imagery. And for me, 
The Holocaust is one of the darkest chapters in human history, certainly the darkest chapter in recent human history. Um, and it was such a, a nightmare, such an atrocity that uh, I totally get why people would be insulted by seeing, you know, images of Holocaust survivors or whatever, or bodies juxtaposed with pigs, etc. And yet, Strangely enough, you know, I'm older now, obviously, time and all that, than I was when I first started the podcast. Um, and you think maybe my views might have gotten more conservative in this department, but I'm actually more sympathetic to Holocaust comparisons now that I've seen more of what happened. And I get the argument that... Um, as sentient and aware as animals can be, and we are animals, but we're so different that we're, we're used to people breaking humans and animals and like, talking about them in two different categories. Uh, but humans are animals. But other animals, despite how sentient and aware they can be, they're, they're not as cognitively advanced as us. They don't have the mastery of language and abstract thought that we do. Um, I think animals may be more self-aware than we give them credit for, but I, I think, you know, we assume that they're not as self-aware as we are. So in this sense, people um, think it's insulting to compare the nightmare of the Holocaust to um, animals being slaughtered. But once again, I think you can make certain comparisons or if you watch the, you know, what goes on behind the curtain, the horrors that take place with factory farming, you almost can't help but to make these comparisons. And it's funny, uh, in one of the documentaries, or, no, actually, I, I think it was somewhere else. I think I was just watching a video on YouTube. Uh, I was listening to this talk given by a Holocaust survivor who's also an animal rights activist. And he said something, I'm paraphrasing. People ask me if what I went through with the Holocaust has something to do with my animal rights activism. And he says, no, it doesn't have something to do with it. It has everything to do with it. You know what I mean? And uh, I forget the man's name, but I just did a Google search and maybe this is him. There's a guy named Alex Hershaft, um, an American animal rights activist, Holocaust survivor, and co-founder and president of the Farm Animals Rights Movement. Um, Dr. Alex Hershaft. I don't know if this is referring to the same guy, but there's um, a YouTube video here. A Holocaust survivor, now vegan activist. When I first saw the slaughterhouse, yeah, I saw all those body parts and it just brought back uh, memories. Eighty-two-year-old Dr. Alex Hershaft survived the Holocaust. Um, Based on your experiences, why did you then choose to become a, an animal advocate rather than a human rights advocate? I think that the 
Oppression of animals is the gateway drug to oppressing humans. Wow, that's heavy. Because when a child is first told that the dog on his sofa is to be loved and cherished, whereas uh, the pig on his plate is to be abused, killed, dismembered, and Jesus. eaten for food, yep. uh, that's the first time that we instill the notion in, in a child's mind that it is okay to discriminate between two living beings that uh, basically look and seem alike, which is uh, the, the basis of all forms of oppression, is that uh, you're basically telling one living being that he can live and another that he must die, uh, living beings who look basically the same. Obviously, as time passes, that is really powerful. And I apologize for the poor audio quality there. I didn't plan on playing any uh, videos, so that was just uh, my faithful Blue Yeti microphone catching uh, the external audio from my computer. But let's uh, journey more into the nightmare. So, uh, next, uh, calves taken from mother. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier on or not, but um, yeah, back in the day, I remember thinking, yeah, I could probably be a vegetarian. You know, we can still have dairy because I'm like two of my favorite things in the world, ice cream and pizza. You're telling me I can uh, give up meat, have a guilt-free conscience, and I can still eat ice cream and pizza? Like, sign me up, man. You know what I mean? But uh, as I was saying, it's all interconnected. As I think I mentioned last week, I, I mentioned the not-so-cherry subject of maceration. How in general, since animals are usually artificially inseminated, there's not really a big need for male animals. Um, and, uh, you know, in the case of uh, the egg industry... All they really need is hens that can continue, you know, lay eggs for them. And they only need a small number of males. So the fluffy, cute little um, male chicks, most of them get tossed into this nightmare contraption full of whirling blades called a macerator. And uh, the female hens, when they're uh, deemed to not be productive enough anymore, um they end up getting uh, slaughtered. And in the case of dairy, uh, basically calves are... I, and this is one of those things I never really gave much thought to. I think all of us probably have these idyllic visions of where our food and where our dairy products come from. We picture, you know, Bessie the cow moseying along with, you know, the sun on the horizon and wide green fields. And, you know, I mean, and the calf comes up and gets its milk and we still get our milk. But calves are taken away sometimes uh, within hours, sometimes a day or two after being born. Supposedly, uh, I've, I actually was reading yesterday where farmer, some farmers were trying to spin it. And I don't know, maybe there's some truth to it, that at least certain I don't know if they're Holstein cows, but a certain type of cow that's commonly used in the dairy industry, they're claiming that they're not that atta attached to their babies. 
that maybe if the babies are, are even, you know, kept around, they might pay him a visit, like drop in by the stall once a day or something, you know, something like that. But um, I've heard that cows are, you know, smart enough that they actually, they can identify the sound of their own calf. And as I was saying, there's like video footage of mother cows trotting after trucks pulling away with the babies in the back. And uh, they hold on to the female cows because they're going to be the next generation of, you know, dairy cows or whatever. Um, but the male cows, I guess, so sometimes they get a bolt in the head the first day on their first day on Earth. Other ones are, you know, set aside for veal where they're, um, they're bound so they can't overwork their muscles, so the meat's nice and tender. They get uh, a few months on this earth before they're taken out. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, if the male males are kept for longer, it's off to the slaughterhouse with them eventually. And like the chickens, when the uh, cows, I think I was almost going to say female cow again. Cows are by definition female when they're deemed to no longer be uh, productive enough off to the slaughterhouse. I guess, uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but they said in one of those documentaries that basically the female cows that are no longer deemed to be profitable or productive enough end up, uh, they, they become fast food hamburger or whatever. And damn it, I did it, didn't I? I just said female cow again. <laughs> female cattle or whatever. Okay. Next in my notes, I see I jotted down ducks force-fed, no water for buoyancy. Okay, so we've probably all heard of, uh, how, do you, how do you pronounce it? Foie gras? Foie gras? Foie gras. Foie gras. Foie gras. Yeah, what? They said, and so uh, you know. I think was it. Does it mean fatty duck liver or something like that? I, I don't know. Um, but but it's like this um, French delicacy, and I've oh I've always heard about it being made by basically you know they force feed ducks, and for some reason, I mean this is bad enough. But I, I pictured like maybe a flexible tube being put down the duck's mouth. They were showing ducks being force fed. And there was literally like this metal pipe coming out of a wall, like uh, like a 90 degree angle. And they're sliding the duck horizontally onto the pipe, you know, just so this thing's going way down inside it. And I, I don't know if that's how it's done in every case, but in this case, that's how they were doing it. And then they, they pump whatever it is, the... Um, I forget, is it butter or what What the heck is it? I don't know. They force feed them something. And let's see, I just looked it up. So yeah, it's French for fat liver. And uh, it, it's defined as the liver of a duck or goose fattened by force feeding corn. What I say, butter? Uh, <laughs> with a feeding tube. And it should go without saying that I'm not laughing at the... Uh, the ducks and their suffering. I'm laughing at my, my, the, the absurdity that is me. Uh, okay. And it's another one of those things that you might not stop to think about, but 
ducks that are raised on factory farms. Um, since ducks are aquatic, being in water is a big part of their development, and their bodies are designed for you know this kind of aquatic uh, lifestyle or whatever, for lack of a better term, and they're meant to develop, you know, being in water. And uh, it's, it's, it's really like, kind of like that skinned animal. Um, just this image that really evokes, uh, I don't know, pathos or sympathy. It's like a pitiful image watching these poor little ducks trying to move around on land. But that's, I mean, obviously ducks can come on land. But when, you know, part of their development takes place in water. So when you don't give a duck access to water and it's just kept in some crappy dark factory farm on a hard surface, watching what happens to their bodies, the, the way their legs work or don't work, it's uh, awful. And next in my notes, I have de-beaked chickens and overgrown turkeys. But yeah, so there literally is something called a pecking order. And in a natural kind of setting or if given enough room, chickens are social animals and they form a hierarchy that's called a pecking order. When they're all packed closely together, like they are in, you know, they, they're kept in these things called battery cages and, you know, these factory farm conditions. And that's another thing, like another instance of if you don't care about the animals, just seeing the conditions would gross you out and probably make you uh, second guess your dietary choices because the chickens are kept so close together. In some cases, they're on top of the, the carcasses of chickens that happen to die from disease or whatever. And basically it causes chaos to have all these chickens cramped so tightly together. It's not uh, in their nature to be like that. And so they'll try to peck each other and to keep them from damaging the product, keep them from, you know, injuring each other. They, uh, they de-beak them. And, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, oh, I grew up on a farm and let me tell you, chickens are stupid. You know what I mean? That I've heard people say things like that, but chickens aren't so stupid that they can't feel pain. And there's image of the taking adult chickens and basically slicing their, you know, part of their beak off and then pushing their heads forward into like this hot iron to cauterize the amputated, you know, the stump where the rest of the beak was. And you can see the chicken trying to pull backwards and scrunching up its eyes in pain. So yeah, they're smart enough that they feel pain. And I guess nowadays the, the most common thing is that they're de-beaked as um, little chicks. And they're just showing this crazy machine whirling around with all little baby chicks hanging from it. And like they're be they're hanging by their beaks and the beaks get uh trimmed by you know this uh crazy contraption and wow i don't believe it i, I think this is going to end up being like a three-hour episode at least it's 10 40 p.m on monday night and i have to get up bright and early get blood drawn then go to work and there's my dog uh what i say snortle and short <laughs> yesterday 
uh, chortling and snorting. Um, then I have to go to work, and then I have to uh, have my yearly physical after. So I'm probably going to call it quits for the night, and uh, I'll continue recording tomorrow. Until then. So, hey, I'm back. I know it probably seems like I never left, but uh, a couple of days have transpired. Uh, let's see what happened. Well, for starters, someone hit my parked car while I was at work. Uh, it's actually the second time this has happened to me. Um, I might have talked about it on the show before. This is pretty kind of mundane stuff, so I'll try to just breeze right through it. Uh, I think I was working in Waltham or Stoneham or something. Uh, inside my car, taking a respite from my miserable work day and, uh, you know, eating lunch. And all of a sudden, my whole... I drive a Kia Soul. Did you picture me in a Kia Soul? Well, that's why I drive. And the, the whole car rocked. And some uh, girl was backing out of her driveway without looking and just slammed right into my car. And this time, I think, did I mention on the main show of the Patreon bonus show that... Uh, a friend of mine actually passed away, uh, also named Phil, strangely enough, and uh, actually passed away on my on my birthday, October 8th. Uh, I think I might have mentioned that on the show. And uh, so we're doing some work for his mother right now. We're actually uh, renovating her garage. She wants the garage kind of like finished so it looks all nice on the inside or whatever. Um, so I was gutting her garage. Th that sounded like a weird, did that sound like a euphemism? And, uh, and, and another strange coincidence, a relative of mine, like an older cousin who's around like my parents' age, lives directly across from the woman whose house we're working on, the, the mother of the friend that died. And also I see my relative banging on the garage door. And she has a really serious look on her face. I'm wondering what's going on. You know, is there a family emergency? What's happening? She goes, I'm sorry, Philip. I hit your car. I'm like, oh, geez. And, you know, I never get mad at people for accidents because I know what it feels like. I'm kind of a sensitive person to be yelled at for accidents or whatever, you know, or to be treated like someone's whipping boy. So, yeah, I always kind of wear a smile, or try to, even though on the inside, I'm like, oh, fuck. There I, <clears throat> there goes the uh, iTunes clean tag or whatever. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So I'm like, oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, let's take a look. And uh, and at first, I'm like, oh, it doesn't look too bad. You know, as I'm approaching my own car, then all of a sudden, I see the, the bumpers split, like, wide open. Uh, her car, like is usually the case, the other person's car is usually fine. It's mine that's all messed up, but it's not a big deal. You know, I'll, I'll get taken care of through insurance, but it's just who wants to hear that their vehicle just got hit or uh, that you're going to have to deal with an insurance company or maybe be without a car for, you know, anywhere up to a day to a week or whatever. So, like I said, mundane stuff. Not even sure why I shared that with you guys, but hey. So shall we continue cataloging all the awful things that humans do to animals? Uh, I'm almost afraid I'm going to drive you guys away with all this stuff, but if you've made it this far, I imagine most likely you're not going anywhere. So uh, I think we left off with the uh, force feeding of ducks. Now on to baby seals. And we all know about this, right? 
baby seals. We know what happens to them. It's it's awful. And I think in a way, in the collective consciousness, so to speak, of society, clubbing baby seals has almost come to epitomize cruelty. Um, you, you know what I mean? And sometimes people will darkly joke and invoke that image. Hey, it's not like I was clubbing baby seals, you know what I mean? And watching footage of it actually happening is pretty much as bad as you would imagine. Just heartbreaking stuff. Uh, I know some people think maybe there's this kind of unfair bias we have towards quote-unquote cute animals. But certainly, uh, baby seals are so, yeah, just what's cuter than a baby seal, you know what I mean? And in fairness, I don't know if the animals in the footage, I, I forget if it was in Earthlings or Dominion, which documentary. I don't know if they were adult seals or if they were babies. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's awful either way. And there was another really gruesome, disturbing image that really stuck with me. Uh, yeah, just horrible. And this is another thing. I'm like, I feel like I'm a ghoul if I describe it, you know? But I'm trying to share my own thoughts and my emotional reactions to all this with you guys. And uh, in a way, maybe it's selfish, but it's like I'm trying to unburden myself, you know? <laughs> but while I'm doing that, I'm kind of inflicting all this stuff on you guys. But there's this horrible image of what's left after a baby seal or a seal is clubbed and skinned. And it basically looked like a macabre, grotesque parody of what a seal, you know, should look like. Um, just this thing lying in the, in the snow, uh, the surrounding snow, you know, turned red with blood, the skin's gone. So it, once again, kind of like I talked about that skinned animal, it was just like this skinless nightmare thing. Um, just really surreal and, and horrible. And uh, the thing's eyes are staring right into the camera like they're looking into your soul, you know? But they're bulging out, just these bulging black eyes and a dented-in skull, just like the stuff of nightmares. Once again, you know, it's just an image that fills you with sadness and anger. And I've mentioned this on the show before, and I've felt this way for a long time. I, I think killing animals solely for their fur or, you know, their skins. And for what, you know, so that some vain person somewhere can go around sporting a uh, expensive fur coat or whatever. I think killing animals for their fur or skins, that should be completely banned. And I'm just a podcaster sharing my thoughts here, so it's not like I have any power to directly change things. But, you know, if I was king for a day, you know, I would like to see killing animals for their skins or their fur just universally, globally banned. I don't think any animal should ever have to die to, you know, appease someone's vanity. And I'm willing to be a little generous or charitable here, and I, I hope that many of the people who do wear fur, if they were to actually see the horrendous conditions on these fur farms, or if they were to see the suffering, you know, the animals were put through so they can wear a fur coat, that hopefully 
you know, they'd want to see that, that band too. I don't know. Some people can be, you know, pretty cold or callous. But um, in fairness, in the case of seals, I know seals, it's off. I would imagine that sometimes they probably are killed just for their skins. But I know they're also often killed uh, for their meat as well. Uh, you know, um, indigenous people like the Inuit, as well as, uh, you know, white hunters of European descent or whatever, uh, in various parts of the world will hunt seals both for their skins and their meat. And I'm actually looking at a little Wikipedia article here. It's saying seal hunting is currently practiced in 10 countries. The United States, above the Arctic Circle in Alaska, Canada, Namibia, Denmark, and self-governing Greenland only, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Finland, and Sweden. Most of the world seal hunting takes place in Canada and Greenland. Oh yeah, and here's a part that caught my attention earlier. It relates to the uh, you know the ages of the animals when it's legal or illegal to uh, to hunt or kill a seal. It says in Greenland or Greenland, uh, hunting is done with a firearm, rifle, or shotgun, and young are fully protected. And, and that sounds kind of good. Young are fully protected, but <laughs> there's a but. This has caused some conflicts with other seal hunting nations, as Greenland also was hit by the boycotts that often were aimed at seals, often young, killed by clubbing or similar methods, which have not been in use in Greenland. It is illegal in Canada to hunt newborn harp seals, or they're also called white coats, and young hooded seals, bluebacks. When seal pups begin to molt their downy white fur at the age of 12 to 14 days, they are called ragged jacket and can be commercially hunted. So they can be commercially hunted at 12 to 14 days old. After molting, the seals are called beaters, named for the way they beat the water with their flippers. The hunt remains highly controversial, attracting significant media coverage and protests each year. Images from past hunts have become iconic symbols for conservation, animal welfare, and animal rights advocates. In 2009, Russia banned the hunting of harp seals less than one year old. And so there's another section here that kind of caught my interest. And it relates to the equipment and method, you know, the used in killing the seals. In the Canadian commercial seal hunt, the majority of the hunters initiate the kill using a firearm. Then uh, a little lower down, it says an older and more traditional method of killing seals is with a haka pick. I'm probably butchering that. No pun intended. Uh, a little gallows humor. A heavy wooden club with a hammerhead and metal hook on the end. The haka pick is used because of its efficiency. The animal can be killed quickly without damaging, without damage to its pelt. So you see where the priority is. The hammerhead is used to crush the seal's thin skulls, while the hook is used to move the carcasses. Then there's a section here where they kind of reiterate what they were saying earlier about, you know, at what age a seal can be killed. And this might just be referring to Canada, I'm not sure. 
but says the commercial hunting of infant harp seals, white coats, and infant hooded seals, bluebacks, was banned in 1987 under pressure from animal rights groups. Now seals may only be killed once they have started molting from 12 to 15 days of age, as this coincides with the time when they are abandoned by their mothers. And so there's adding insult to injury or kind of a double whammy. You're abandoned by your mother and then someone's chasing you and smashing your head in with a, uh, with a hammer. And that seems like a really kind of strange logic to me. Oh, their mother abandons them at about two weeks into their life, so it must be all right to bash their heads in. Okay. And it just goes to show you how brutal and cold both nature and man can be. You know, their mothers abandon them at only two weeks into their lives. But then again, I mean, maybe, uh, who knows, they've evolved so that, barring man and other predators, a seal can do all right, you know, two weeks in on their own. I, I don't know. And, I mean, yeah, I'm a softy. I'm an animal lover. So the idea of killing a seal in general bothers me. But it's, real, it's so kind of morbid and strange that they're killed that early into their lives. And so I guess this brings me to the subject of hunting. And, you know, as an animal lover, I don't like to think of, you know, think about any animal being killed. But I have said in the past that I think there is a strong argument you can make that hunting is more ethical than the way most of us, you know, get our meat. Uh, most of us let someone else do the dirty work and we just pick out the, uh, you know, the nicely packaged uh, product at the, at the supermarket where we're probably kind of only half conscious that this actually came from, you know, a, a living animal. And so I think hunting's probably more ethical in a couple of ways. Um, like I was just kind of alluding to, on the one hand, at least the hunter's taking responsibility and uh, they're doing the dirty work themselves, you know what I mean? And I think at least in the case of hunting, uh, not for those little baby seals, but in a lot of cases, you know, the animal hopefully at least had something of a good run. It, it got to experience a life of freedom in the wilderness and it had some kind of uh, decent quality of life before someone, you know, put the brakes on it. Uh, so at least when you're hunting, you know, you're not um, contributing to the nightmare that is factory farming. And uh, you're doing the work yourself. And I think I've gone over this on the show in the past too, but this is one of those cases where I feel like intention actually does matter. Well, it might not matter for the animal that's being hunted, you know, um, no matter what the hunter's intention is uh, or, you know, whether the hunter respects the animal or not, the animal still, is and still ends up dead, the same end result. But I think Sam Harris often used to speak about intention and how intention in some cases can really matter. And to me, intention... In the case of hunting, um, it, it does matter to some degree. Um, for some reason, I find the idea of, say, someone who really respects 
the animal they're hunting. Well, as much as you can respect something, you're going to kill, right? But someone who has a kind of respect for the animal doesn't want it, want it to suffer more than it has to, tries to at least, you know, grant it a quick death, a, a quick, clean death, hopefully. Um, and who is kind of grateful in a, in a way for the meat and the resources that the animal is going to grant them. And they use, you know, the meat to feed themselves and their family. That's much more palatable to me than the idea of someone uh, going out with a six pack and, you know, just wants to kill something and, uh, you know, doesn't really, really have the proper respect for the animal they're hunting. Um, so I guess in that way, intention kind of matters to me. And especially when we're talking about like big game hunting, where I don't think the rich bastards that go out and, you know, hunt exotic animals like uh, great cats or elephants or whatever, I don't think they're eating the meat, right? It's just kind of a macho thing. They're just going out and trying to kill a, a big, powerful animal. Um I think that's grotesque. And I know, I think Donald Trump's sons, you know, have been involved with big game hunting, right? Um, yeah, I, that's just, uh, I, I think on this show, I covered Cecil the Lion. And um, and I know a lot of people tried, tried to point out the hypocrisy. People were getting all weepy for Cecil the Lion. But what, what about all the pigs and cows we, you know, consume? you know, who live these horrible lives as I've gone over in factory farms. And that's actually very fair because I think we should be thinking about those animals. But I think what really makes big hunting, uh, big game hunting grotesque is the fact, like I said, you're not doing it so you can feed yourself and your family. You're going out there to prove you know, how it's for your own ego or, or vanity or the adrenaline rush of killing, um, you know, some big exotic animal. So, yeah, I do think that hunting for your food is, uh, you know, incrementally more ethical than factory farming. Uh, absolutely. But still, as I said, the end result is a dead animal. And that brings up, you know, like the million dollar question. I think, you know, the, the big philosophical question that our species has to confront at some point, you know, just like we had to confront. Uh, and here I go, you know, I, I already made myself a target by doing the Holocaust comparison. Now I'm going to uh, bring up slavery. But, you know, now it seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, human beings should not own other human beings. Uh, and I think it's probably kind of hard, I'll speak for myself, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact, you know, it kind of shocks the conscience that only, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, there were still people here in America who owned other human beings as chattel, you know, as property. What I say a couple hundred years ago, uh, I think, when was it? 1863 that slavery was, uh, was banned um, here in the U.S. And I think 
most people probably knew on some level that uh, there was a big moral problem here. There was something wrong with the idea of owning other human beings as property. And I think that's evident when, you know, you study the founding fathers and many of them were kind of conflicted. Uh, these were men who were products of the Enlightenment, but at the same time owned other human beings as property. And yet, uh, like, like I said, they were uh, conflicted about it. And you can see that in their writings. And I think it's the type of thing that people knew it was wrong, but it had to come to a head before it was finally uh before, you know, the practice was finally banned. And I've often wondered if a similar day will come in our future where our species, uh, you know, I think all of us know on some level that even though you can make the argument that it's natural, you know, the food chain and all that, to, you know, in a way, it might be one of the most natural things there is, you know, life feeding on life, uh, organisms killing other organisms for sustenance, etc. That, in a way, killing other living beings might be fairly natural, but there's something morally problematic about it. You know what I mean? Um, that when you kill another living thing, even if it's something, you know, someone someone else might characterize as a lower life form or whatever, even if it's a chicken, uh, or, or even if it's a mouse, you know, that's caught in a trap in your house or whatever, and its neck is broken and, you know, the little contraptions people leave around, uh, mouse traps, I think they're called, you know, there's something irreplaceable. An individual living being has been snuffed out. And there might be others of their kind, sure, but that individual is irrevocably gone. And there's the moral question of, did you have the right, or is it morally acceptable to ever kill another living being? And I'm an atheist, uh, agnostic atheist. You know, I'm highly doubtful that there's a higher power out there, an afterlife or whatever. Um, so a lot of people might say, you know, that uh, hackneyed question that Christian apologists, etc., throw at non-believers, where do your morals come from, you know? And for me, as I've said ad nauseum in the show, I think morality is partly evolutionary. I think we're social animals who, yeah, we're wired for tribalism and violence. There is that dark side. But we're also wired with a capacity for group solidarity, for compassion, for you know altruism. And I think we're able to project that empathy that we can feel for one another, even onto members of other species. And I think it was near the end of Earthlings, where uh, Joaquin Phoenix says something about when we wince at the suffering of animals, it speaks well of us. And I agree. And I think, you know, that's proof that we do, we do have, we can empathize with other creatures. And, and we realize that the suffering of other creatures is something that should be, you know, avoided or prevented if it can be. 
And I don't want to come across as, you know, being too unrealistic or, or over-idealistic about all this. Because, yeah, I get it. You know, if uh, there's an infestation of ants or termites in your house, might want to call the exterminator. Or even, you know, I'd rather, in the case of, like, mice or something like that, if you or squirrels or whatever, that, if you could... It's, yeah, I always think it's nicer to use um, non-lethal non-lethal traps or catch-and-release kind of traps, you know. But I get it. I get it when people have, like, infestations in their house. You gotta do something about it. And obviously, uh, you know, if we're talking about other, um, if we're talking about other human beings, or even if the rare occasion we might come face-to-face -face with a dangerous animal, yeah, the self-defense is perfectly understandable, yeah. I think he, there was a weird story in the news this week on the local news about a man whose uh, son was attacked by a coyote. I believe the man actually strangled or suffocated the coyote uh, to death. So, um, on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, I totally understand that. There's even in cases like that, Right, understand why the animal had to be taken out. I still feel bad for it on some level, you know what I mean? But in the case of things like factory farming or fur farms, where we're just generating all this needless misery and suffering and treating uh, other living beings in absolutely horrific or nightmarish fashion, you know? Um, I think we do, we do have to come face to face with that big moral question. Uh, is this right? Is it necessary? And, and I would say with a resounding no, no, it's not. Uh, it's not right because we're causing needless suffering. And it's not necessary because I, I understand that there were points in time where, our ancestors may have needed animal resources for survival, you know? But nowadays, where, uh, you know, to keep warm, you can wear a, a faux fur coat or, you know, Gore-Tex, like, uh, like George Costanza on Seinfeld, the puffy jacket or whatever it was. Um, and where you can go into a supermarket and there's pretty much, uh, you know, a, a plant-based or synthesized, uh, you know, like in the form of supplements, alternative to whatever nutrients you can get from meat. We, we I think we've reached a point where we, re we don't need to eat meat and we don't need, uh, you know, to wrap ourselves in the skins of animals to survive, you know? And I would imagine, and hopefully I'm not over-romanticizing things, but when I think about our ancestors, uh, who probably practiced, you know, some form of animism or something like that, I, I imagine, and just like um, indigenous peoples around the world now, uh, I think there's a, there's a kind of respect for the animals that were being hunted and whose, you know, skins and meat were being used for survival or whatever. And I think if you look at a modern factory farm and you see those horrible images or videos of the way animals are treated, the way they're chucked around like rag dolls, 
the way they're mocked in their final moments, the way they're beaten and kicked. There is no respect there. We have basically debased ourselves and demonstrated how low we can sink as a species to where we're treating other living beings as if they're nothing more than products or objects to be exploited. And I'm like two hours into this episode now, so I can barely remember what I covered and what I haven't. But I think somewhere near the beginning, I might have mentioned how basically horror movies came to mind when I was watching these documentaries that were exposing how horrifically animals are treated in, in these factory farms. And... I mean, really, yeah, like, stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff like that came to my mind, uh, where we're seeing human beings basically acting like nightmarish ogres from fairy tales, just dragging these innocent beings to their deaths, uh, treating them in absolutely bloody, barbaric, gory fashion, um... It's really what came to mind to me is like, we're like Leatherface to the, to these other innocent beings that we slaughter. You know what I mean? The stuff of nightmare. So I've been rambling without referring to my notes for a while now. So should I uh, resume my ghoulish catalog of horrors here? Let me see. Ducks. Yeah, we talked about ducks. Seals talked about them. Uh, I talked about the Debeak chickens. And that really did uh, surprise... I mean, I know that birds are sentient creatures. And uh, depending on the specific breed of bird, you know, some are more intelligent than others. Often, you know, chickens are characterized as uh, being not the brightest of birds, you know. But just how alive, how aware they were when... Um, they showed the adult chicken being debeaked and it's, you know, the stump of its beak being cauterized. Just how you could really read the pain on its face. Um, well, it stuck with me. And then I made a note about something we probably already know that turkeys and chickens are bred and pumped full of hormones, etc. So they'll be um, significantly larger than they naturally would be. Uh, without man-made interference or whatever. And the effect this had on the turkeys especially really stood out to me because they have such trouble carrying that tremendous weight around that often they suffer from, uh, whether it's broken legs or deformities of the leg and feet because uh, the legs just, the feet end up like curling under, etc. You know, under the, all sorts of weird leg and foot conditions brought about by the burden of trying to carry all that excess weight. And watching these turkeys trying to walk around with these messed up legs and feet, it was another one of those moments where I, I felt like, even if you don't feel sorry for the animals, which I did, you know, watching them try to walk around these messed up limbs, I mean, it was definitely an image full of pathos, but it's also like, even if you don't care about the animals, I mean, you should be kind of grossed out by the conditions <laughs> or, or find it somewhat unappetizing, you know? 
And I know it probably sounds like I'm preaching here, but believe me, I'm a work in progress. Uh, one of my favorite foods on this earth, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, you know, turkey with gravy and stuffing. One of my favorite things. And But there it is, though. There's that weird cognitive disconnect where, and speaking for myself personally, I was almost about to, to say we as in like the royal we again, but, you know, Speaking for myself personally, even looking at the kind of golden brown turkey you eat on Thanksgiving, I mean, right there in front of you, you see the wings and the legs. You can totally see that this is the remains of a, of a once living animal. But there is that disconnect where still, for some reason, the full stark realization that this was a live sentient thing with eyes to look around and, you know, its own quirky little personality. Uh, it's not there fully for some reason. And in part, it's probably due to the fact that we're just so far removed from the whole process. Most of us don't spend, you know, a lot of time on a farm where, where we're surrounded by animals that will eventually become food or whatever. So it's kind of easy to forget that these really were living beings and, you know, just kind of push that to the back of our mind somewhere. And there's that William S. Burroughs book, Naked Lunch. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think he actually got the title for that book from Jack Kerouac. And it's not a book about uh, animal welfare or anything. No, it's, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, well, that, that's a whole nother episode talking about William S. Burroughs. But I think what Kerouac meant by naked lunch was like, you have this naked lunch moment where you suddenly realize what's at the end of your fork, you know? And I just wanted to look it up for a minute so I wouldn't have to, uh, issue a correction next time around. I'm a big fan of uh, beat literature. I used to read a lot of Kerouac. Burroughs states in his introduction that Jack Kerouac suggested the title. The title means exactly what the words say, naked lunch, a frozen moment when everyone sees what is on the end of every fork. And so speaking about the conditions in which animals are raised, and it's funny, I've been trying to... Uh, wean myself off of dairy. Actually, today, for the first time ever, I bought a, a carton of almond milk and I bought non-dairy ice cream. Haven't tried them yet, but we'll see. And, and that's because, and eggs, I was never really huge on eggs anyway, so those weren't terribly hard to uh, give up. But I'm not opposed to eggs and dairy in general in and of themselves. Let's say you had the perfect conditions where, I don't know, you had Bessie the cow who got to live to a ripe old age, you know what I mean, die of natural causes. Uh, the calf got some milk and the humans got some milk and plenty of room to, uh, to mosey around and graze and everything. I, I wouldn't be opposed to milk, you know, and let's say the hens uh, were kept, you know, died of natural causes, basically kept like pets or members of the family, you know, and uh, plenty of room to move around, etc. Uh, you know, like if I had uh, 
some pet hens or something in my backyard that were treated really well and all that. Uh, I, I would have no problem eating the eggs. And I know some people even oppose that. And there's kind of this key difference between vegetarians and vegans, uh, other than the fact that vegetarians can still have um, eggs and dairy. But vegans tend to be a step more forward, too, regarding uh, animal liberation. Uh, they kind of promote that, uh, that ethic more. And so I think... Well, I don't know if it's complete animal liberation or what animal liberation necessarily means in every context. Because it's fun. I watch uh, this vegan YouTube. There's a few vegan YouTubers I started watching. But Vegan Gains is one that I've, uh, you know, that I've watched for a long time. And I know Vegan Gains has a pet dog. So there are vegans who, you know, they're not so extreme that they think you shouldn't even have dogs or something like that. But I know some vegans are opposed to things like backyard chickens and that kind of thing. Me, personally, if the animals were really treated well, I knew they were treated well. I knew where the milk and eggs were coming from. I mean, I wouldn't have a problem with uh, dairy in that context. But just knowing that most likely the eggs are coming from some place where the uh, where the male chicks are being culled or whatever, tossed into macerators, and you know the the chickens are all cramped together in battery cages, and knowing that the milk is probably coming from some place where. Um, you know, the calves are taken away early on and sent away to be, you know, veal or eventually be butchered or whatever. And that even the uh, the uh, the cows themselves would eventually end up uh, turning into, uh, you know, McDonald's hamburgers or whatever. Just knowing there's a good chance that's where the eggs and dairy are, are coming from. I'd like I'd rather just not be a part of that process anymore. And like I was saying, I'm a work in progress, so I'm not preaching to you guys or telling you guys what you should or shouldn't do. I mean, being intellectually honest, you might, I mean, there might be that inference because, you know, I'm kind of walking you through why I personally, like philosophically and morally oppose these things. But basically, I mean, it's the nature of my unscripted episodes. I'm basically thinking out loud. I'm kind of unburdening myself. Uh, you guys, I mean, do whatever you guys feel comfortable doing. Uh, don't worry. You know, I'm not trying to tell you guys what to do, I guess is the point. And there were a couple of other documentaries I watched. They're kind of like a nice respite from... Dominion and Earthlings. They weren't as much of a brutal assault as those, you know. But they were made by the same two guys, I think. Uh, well, both these documentaries I'm referring to were uh, Cowspiracy and What the Health. Um, I think the, the main guy behind it, uh, his first name's Kip, I forget his last name, but there was uh, a moment in, I think it was in Cowspiracy, where he's talking to this family who owned like a small farm. And it was what you kind of prefer to envision when, when you're thinking about where, you know, your meat or whatever come from. 
it was kind of this nice family. They had little kids and uh, wide open green fields. You know, the uh, the kids played with the animals, and the guy Kip was interviewing uh, the little girl. And uh, it was this really kind of idyllic scene where you had uh, the little girl was like sitting on a stump or a log or something. And the pigs, you know, would just come, looked very happy, would just come over and play with her. And she'd pet them and she would tell you what the name of the pig was and tell you how, you know, they made really good friends and playmates. But that her parents told her not to bond too much with them because eventually they're going to become dinner or whatever, you know? And the parents, this couple were saying that they live this lifestyle because they love the animals. And they think that people, that, that everyone should become more aware of where their meat is coming from and realize that your meat is really coming from a living being, you know? And of course, all of that was relatively refreshing, you know, after watching these horrible factory farming uh, documentaries or whatever. Um, but I still couldn't help but to, you know, kind of muse or think, oh, that's still got to be weird, though, man. Especially like if you and I know for throughout much of history, that's how it works. You know, you had families who owned their own animals or the, these little farms and people really did take good care of the animals, bond with them. And that, but you know, it's, it's kind of weird though. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. That moment when this animal that you have spent so much time caring for and bonding with, when it's like, okay, today's the day, your food, man, <laughs> put your neck on the chopping block, you know? That's where enough, but I was also thinking about, uh, I think the couple might have said that, you know, the animals get sent out, sent off to slaughter. Like I, th I could be wrong, but I don't think they slaughtered the animals themselves. And I'm thinking about these kind of slaughterhouses that I had seen, you know, this nightmarish, nightmarish footage from, and I'm like, I, I wonder, do these animals that even the animals that are really well Care, cared for and that people bonded with and etc you know maybe you can even say they love these animals um i wonder if they ever get shipped off to these same horrible slaughterhouses and uh i'm just imagining these poor animals that at least they had these people who love them and took care of them ethically etc but then all of a sudden their life ends in this nightmare where the gang, you know, manhandled and tortured or whatever. But I don't know. Maybe these small farms deal with, quote-unquote, better slaughterhouses or more kind of, you know, ethical or conscientious slaughterhouses, whatever that means. You know what I mean? But I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier in, in this episode, when you're dealing with an animal the size of a cow or a pig, I mean, however they, however they're dispatched, it's got to be kind of gruesome to some degree. I mean, those animals have such large necks that you know you can't just lop their heads off like a chicken. So you got to slit the thing's throat, or even if you're using one of those captive bolt guns, they don't always work the first time. You know, so even if you try to give the animal 
as easy a death as possible. I, I imagine it's there's still some moment of of fear or suffering or something at the end, you know, most likely. And I was a, a big Anthony Bourdain fan, and I actually remember covering his, uh, it still seems so surreal saying his suicide. Uh, still thinking that Anthony Bourdain killed himself. Uh, how long ago was that now? I don't know. But I remember uh, covering that on, on the show, you know, because I was such a fan. It was kind of a, a blow when, um, uh, you know, it was all over the news. They had taken his own life. Um, but there was an episode, I I'm trying to think, because he did a couple of different shows. There was uh, No Reservations, right, on the Travel Channel. And then was it Parts Unknown or something like that? I, I don't know. He did a show on CNN after that. But I remember watching uh, this one episode where he was down south somewhere. And, uh, wow, uh, there was this pickup truck with a live pig in the back of it. And these were kind of rough guys, you know what I mean? And, uh, they were going to have some big kind of like celebration or barbecue or something. And they wanted Anthony Bourdain to do, uh, the honors, I guess. And they handed him a pistol and the pig kind of walks up to Anthony Bourdain. And you can tell he feels kind of conflicted, a little sad about it, but not so much that he doesn't pull the trigger. Anthony Bourdain puts the pistol to the pig's head and uh, puts the brakes on it, man, shoots the pig in the head. And then he was talking about how it was kind of tough watching that, you know, the pig, they took the pig right away and started cutting it up, you know, and saying how it was weird how there was this moment where it went from being a dead animal to meat, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm not even quite sure why I'm bringing that up, but uh, I guess it's related somehow. And that reminds me, there's another story I was going to tell. There's this guy who used to uh, work with us, uh, you probably already know by now, I probably mentioned it ad nauseum, my day job, which I'm not crazy about, is working for the family construction or general contracting uh, company. And there was this guy that used to work with us who was kind of like a little rough around the edges. And uh, his hobby or, you know, his idea of laying off steam or whatever, the, the thing he looked forward to at the end of the week was deer hunting. And I remember him kind of talking in gruesome detail one time about field dressing, you know, about how you have to work quickly after you kill the animal so the meat doesn't spoil or whatever. And uh, I'm sure I was probably, you know, eating steaks and hamburgers and stuff back then. So at least this guy was, you know, killing his own food or whatever. I'm sure on top of it, he also probably got, you know, food from the supermarket that comes from these factory farms or whatever. But uh, I I'm trying to not be too much of a hypocrite here. Uh, but, you know, because on, on the one hand, you know, all these cows that so many people don't even give thought to that are... Uh, being killed day in and day out. And, but I remember feeling bad thinking about the deer because I think deer are such, uh, they're really, they're like these beautiful, majestic animals. And I've seen, you know, I live in New England, so I have seen plenty of deer. Um, and, you know, just thinking how I would rather just see one and 
know it was alive out there doing its thing than shoot it and take it apart and all that. But like I said, there's some hypocrisy there because at the time I was probably, you know, still eating steaks and hamburger and uh, those cows were probably living much more, you know, were in horrible, in, being raised in horrible conditions is my point. Uh, or I guess at least this deer got to live in the wild and live free for a while. But let me uh, refer back to my notes again. Oh, so I I typed out a uh, punching sheep and then in parentheses mulesing. I remember thinking like, oh, okay, so I found out that uh, shit, you, you can't even eat eggs and, and dairy and have a clean conscience because of the way the animals are treated. Then I'm like, now you gotta tell me I can't even wear a sweater or something. You know, I'm not saying every place where sheep are shared is like this, but there was some really disturbing footage. Uh, they were showing sheep being uh, shared, and uh, there were just like these big kind of rough guys handling these sheep. Well, roughly, and uh, the sheep, I guess, didn't feel like being shared. You know, and so there's footage of these guys like punching and beating the sheep into submission so they could share them and then they would just take the sheep and like throw it down a chute where it would go out and I guess be taken back uh out to wherever they're kept or something and I'm like shit man even wool you know because <laughs> I think most of us like to picture you know that or that we feel like at least we're somewhat good people because at least the the sheep isn't killed, you know. It's uh we take its its wool, the wool grows back, and then there's this uh, procedure called mulesing, where they basically strip away the skin on the uh, sheep's backside, kind of around its butthole or whatever. <laughs> did I say butthole? Yeah, I did. And um, that's because if that wool is allowed to remain, it can get all dirtied up with, you know, the not to get too... Well, yeah, we're this far in, man. I've already been graphic with the, the sheep's, like, crap or whatever. And also, it, it can make the animal vulnerable to a condition called fly strike, where the flies are kind of drawn to the excrement clinging to the back of the sheep or whatever. Yeah, it's gross. It's gross. But the solution to that is uh, stripping away the sheep's skin. And supposedly it's often done without anesthetic or pain reliever or anything. So it's like, even with sheep, man, it's like, shit, here's another industry that you would, where we derive an animal product, but we like to think that the animal isn't being harmed and it's being harmed. One thing I observed with myself, which I found kind of disturbing uh, because perhaps it uh, denotes a lack of uh, moral fortitude or something, but I noticed just how easy it is to start becoming numb or desensitized again. Because when I first watched Earthlings and Dominion, after that, I wanted like no animal products, you know, anywhere near me, man. I was like ready to go vegan. You know what I mean? And then uh, after like a week, you know, um, all those awful images start kind of fading a bit. And uh, like, well, BK double stacker sounds kind of good right about now. Not that I did. Uh, I, I um, Like I said, I pretty much swore off 
beef and pork I had pretty much already sworn off a long time ago after seeing the way, uh, you know, seeing undercover footage of the way pigs are often treated in these uh, awful factory farm conditions. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I remember thinking to myself only half jokingly, like, damn, am I going to have to watch these documentaries once a week to keep myself, uh, on the straight and narrow or whatever, you know, if I really want to put my money, uh, where my mouth is regarding, uh, my ethics and my, my thoughts on animals or whatever. Okay. So I made another note here and it says, which is healthy kind of moot doesn't answer the moral question. And this came to mind because I was binge watching all of these kind of vegan versus meat eater or carnivore de uh, debates. Uh, and that reminds me, there's this one dude who was on Joe Rogan's show and he has his own channel. He's supposedly a doctor and all the guy eats is meat. And uh, that that's probably a whole nother episode. Um, but anyway, and I was watching all these reactions to the Game Changers documentary, some by vegans saying, you know, what are, praising it and others by, uh, you know, detractors saying that uh, some of the claims made in the film are erroneous or whatever. And so there's all sorts of debates online about whether or not you can get enough protein from a vegan diet, uh, whether or not meat is really bad for you and debates about cholesterol and everything else. And I think uh, a long while back into this episode, we're now at the two hour and 35 minute mark. I discussed the whole B12 debate and everything. And as far as protein is concerned, I guess there are differences. I think animal protein is supposedly more quote unquote complete. All protein is you know made of amino acids. And I think um, even though plant-based sources of protein might not be as complete. If you eat a kind of balanced vegan diet, you should be getting enough amino acids that you end up with complete proteins. And supposedly you can get more than enough protein on a vegan diet. So it's not like you're going to shrivel up and die if you don't eat meat. And uh, all, all protein originally comes from plants in a sense, you know, because animals get their protein from plant sources. Um, and of course, I don't mean all animals. I mean, you know, herbivores, ruminant animals like cows, etc. But I remember thinking, yeah, th this is kind of moot because, you know, there's this back and forth fighting about which is healthier, a vegan diet or uh, not, not everyone on the opposite side promotes a fully carnivore diet. You know, there are people like uh, Chris Kresser, who's a repeat guest on uh, a repeat guest on Joe Rogan's podcast, who promotes a balanced diet. He's an ex-vegan, a balanced diet that includes an appropriate amount of meat or something like that. Um, but there's all this back and forth fighting about which is healthier. And I'm, I remember thinking this still doesn't address the ultimate moral question about whether or not it, you know, it's moral to kill and consume 
another living being, you know? And here I mention Sam Cedar, host of the Majority Report, uh, in my notes. And I remember back in the day, like when I first started listening to podcasts, I used to listen to uh, Sam Cedar's The Majority Report uh, a lot. I just kind of fell out of the uh, habit of listening to it. And Sam Cedar's a very liberal guy, very left-leaning. And so for some reason, I thought maybe he would be more sympathetic to the kind of... uh, the vegan or animal rights approach. But I remember I, I was kind of like negatively surprised in Sam Cedar's reaction because it, it was weird. There's this vegan content creator, a YouTuber, who actually called in to the majority report and he actually had this kind of uh, little back and forth with Sam. And Sam was trying to justify eating meat by, and I thought this was a very bad argument by saying, you know, bringing up the food chain, that the reason why he doesn't really have a moral problem with eating meat is because animal, other animals in nature don't seem to have a problem with killing and eating other animals. And what I think this kind of myopic argument really overlooks is that the thing that makes us kind of quote-unquote special you know, among all the uh, the other species that we share the earth with, is that we, as I mentioned earlier, we have this really kind of advanced capacity for self-reflection and abstract thought. And so we're capable of, of really being able to reflect on our actions and the, the implications or the ramifications of our actions. And so let's say a lion (laughs) or a wolf had the same capacity for self-reflection and, you know, analytical thought as we do. And they were able to get their nutrition from alternate sources. But they still said, no, I love sinking my teeth into uh, the flesh of other animals and ripping them apart, (laughs) you know, even though I don't need to kill and eat them for my sustenance. You know, it's uh, it's what I what I want to do. Uh, I would say, well, that lion or that wolf is an asshole. But you know, <laughs> so that's why animals don't have our same capacity for self reflection and and analysis and etc. So we don't hold them to the same standards that we should hold ourselves because we are aware really deeply aware of our own actions and the in the implications and ramifications. We are aware enough to fully awaken to the horror of the food chain and decide whether or not we want to be a part of that. And I know there's theories about how uh, one of our hominid ancestors, was it uh, Australopithecus? Uh, Is Australopithecus? That's uh, Lucy. That's uh, Lucy was an Australopithecine, right? Uh, anyway, the theories about uh, one of our hominid ancestors, uh, they may have started scavenging from the kills of predators and consuming meat. And something about meat may have, uh, the eating of meat may have been partially the catalyst for our developing our big brains, you know what I mean? And I am totally open to the idea that we may have evolved to be uh, partially carnivorous, you know, to to be 
to be omnivorous and that our, you know, some of our ancestor, uh, hominid ancestors during our evolution may have, uh, you know, consumed meat or whatever. But still, that doesn't answer, answer the moral question. You know, if now that we're as aware, self-aware as we are, and we know we can sustain ourselves without killing and eating other animals, I mean, morally, is it time to stop? You know what I mean? And there's all sorts of debates online about, you know, based on our physiology, uh, is it more likely that we were meant to be omnivorous or uh, then there's the term frugivore or frugivore, as I've heard some pronounce it. Uh, were we, you know, are we designed, quote unquote, designed, said the atheist. Uh, <laughs> designed is such like a loaded term, but you know what I mean. I believe in evolution. Uh, designed or shaped by natural selection or whatever, that we should be eating, that we're frugivores, we should be eating a primarily fruit-based diet. Is that the case? And there might be some merit to that. Um, once again, I don't think it really matters either way because it doesn't address the ultimate moral question. My guess is we're probably meant to have a diet somewhat akin to our closest animal ancestors, uh, like chimps and other great apes. I believe chimps are actually uh, frugivores, although they will also, you know, supplement their uh, their diet with uh, some meat and uh, other things. I think I spoke earlier on in this episode about uh, Jane Goodall and the dark side of chimp nature and how sometimes they will even hunt and eat uh, monkeys. And I know um, chimps and maybe some other great apes too, they've shown kind of simple tool making capabilities where they'll like take a stick and dip it in a termite mound or something so that they pull it out there's insects on it and they eat those and that's they also supplement their diet with that so the other great apes are uh they primarily like 90 something percent eat a plant-based diet and then they supplement it with you know some meat whether it's the meat from insects or uh, like chimps hunting down the occasional monkey or whatever. But you know what, guys? I think I'm going to leave it there. Man, almost three hours in. So for you guys who like the uh, the long unscripted episodes, here you go. <laughs> uh, I still had a bunch of notes to go through, but man, I, I got I to throw in the towel. So as always, uh, thanks for listening to the show. You can like the Facebook page. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter. Um, you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash doubt and supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.